Hello and welcome to the next episode of the podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, this episode was brought to you by our amazing sponsors. Seeds here now. Best in the biz, only seed bank with guarantee on satisfaction as well as germination. Why would you go anywhere else? As well as 420 Australia and Organic Gardening Solutions, your one-stop shops for 420 lifestyle and for your organic gardening needs. On this episode, we're joined by the one and only Leo Stone of Aficionado Genetics to talk all things high-end brands, top-shelf bud, and strain history. Let's get into it. Alrighty, so a big hello and welcome to the mastermind behind Aficionado Genetics. Thanks so much, Leo Stone, for joining us today. Thanks a lot, I really appreciate it, man. No worries. So, first question, what are you currently smoking on? Uh, <clears throat> we haven't named it yet. It's a cross between uh, Cherry Noir, which was a, a collab that uh, me and Gene and I did back in 2013. I gave a mail from my uh, pollen from my Chemdog Special Reserve mail, and he put that on one of his cherry limes. And uh, that plant ended up becoming the mother. Uh, one of the selections from those seeds ended up becoming the mother for the white cherry truffle. So we took that mother, and um, we put a Testarossa mail on it see where it would take it and it took it in an entirely different direction so i've been smoking on it for a week and i've been talking to professor q who's my partner and uh you know he, he lives in france right now and so i'm telling him he's like man you you know what the fuck are we gonna call we have a working title for it you know but it's like you know we don't know what we're gonna name it it's just it's a new flavor we haven't you know we have yet to you know come across so we don't want to give it some generic ass name that's not going to give it some justice yeah, okay. I mean, gosh, there's so many questions I want to ask and I'm going to forget a bunch of them. I guess the first one and the most kind of recent thing you mentioned at the end there was the idea of giving relevant names to strains. I've always felt like this is an important point. Like, you know, someone made a point in the past where they were like, oh, you go give some awesome name to a mm-hmm. strain and then it turns out to mm-hmm. be a shitty strain. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do you think should be our conventions around naming strains? Do you think people should put an effort into trying to make, like, you know, name it after yeah. something? Yeah, it's it's like, it's like uh, I I think I you know it, it's it's the identity of the strain, you know. And if you go beyond that and you go start like you know we're breeders and you know your job is to make strains connect with people and you have to market those strains so you connect with people. And so, you know, I, we really approach it. It's it's a lot like music to us, you know. It's like the 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 name of the album, the name of the track, has to fit the song. And so, it you know, in our case, as being breeders, for us, it's like the name really has to fit the strain. And uh, when it comes to naming, you know, it, it's it's an important aspect of, you know, distinguishing yourself as a breeder or a creator of strains um, on what you name your strains. It's what it's it's the it's going to be the world's first. Um, it's going to be the world's first experience and interface with your work. They're going to under they're going to hear the name, they're going to hear about it before they even smoke it you know, 99.9% of the time. So to me, it's the, I, I, it's, 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 the, it's the true identity that you're going to give it for the long term. So I think that a lot of, um, a lot of thought, a lot of really careful thought needs to go into what you're going to name your children, right? So it's, to me, the same thing is said with, 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 with what we go naming a strain. It's not really a convention. Um, we'll go into breeding a strain and people will, you know, we'll go, oh, let's call it this. And, You'll finish the strain at the end, and it just doesn't fucking identify with that name. You got to call it something different. It, it's its essence, 
it, you know, isn't exposed till you're done making the strain and it's final and it's fun in the final product. That's what you name, you know, in the consistency of, of, of your strains you're breeding. It's, it's, this is like a really, this is something I'm super passionate about is, is I think it goes often overlooked because a lot of breeders got to understand that every single fucking strain is its own brand. It's not about your company as the fucking seed brand. Yeah, that's the umbrella. You're the carrier. You're the worker bee. The plant is allowing you to take its pollen and make certain crosses. I believe that more than anything, you know. But when it comes to you know naming these things and giving these things a life, of and and an identity, you know, uh, it, it's 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 a huge fucking process for us because that's gonna that's that's the life of that cookies right let's say someone took cookies and jigga said and jigga got lazy and was like oh this is just f1 derb cross you know does it fucking taste does it when you open the bag does it smell like a plate of fresh cookies fuck no but it has its own identity you could open a bag and smell cookies and mm, that's fucking cookies and the label's right there and so like our goal as breeders is to establish that is to establish something that's easy to remember but also inspires a sense of the name is supposed to instantly inspire a sense of value or 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 an idea or a myth or or is supposed to um, connect with a certain emotion. You know, that's what we try to do when we strains, you know, it's like, you know, who wants real weed head knows what cat piss is. Real weed heads know what cat piss is. But you ask your you know, you ask people, hey, you want to smoke wedding cake, great pie or cat piss? they'll probably pick the sweeter of the strains unless they know what cat piss is. So, you know, the branding is really important to me. Yeah, yeah, on the money with that one. So, a sentiment someone has echoed in the past was that they were looking up some names because they wanted to name their strain this name. So, they're looking to see if it's taken and sure enough it is. And then so, they think of next in line and then sure enough that one's taken. Do you ever do you ever fear that that day is going to come when there are really no names? It's happening fucking right now. There's so many strains um, we've been working on and, um, you know, some of these strains take years, you know what I mean? Some of the times, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make an F1, the F1 will be so fucking fire and it'll, it'll, it'll do great in testing and that will just release F1s. But when we're, when we're trying to, um, you know, whether we're trying to take something and back cross it or we're trying to bring it to like F2, 3 or 4, depending on what we want to release, because people want to, you know, a certain modicum of variety – um, I'm sorry, I got high. I lost my fucking train of thought. I'm gonna be real with you. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, that up. Um, not, not the first time it's happened. We were talking about um the uh, names being taken. Oh, oh, boom! So this is my point because that, that was yeah. So um, we're having that this year where we're looking up different strains that we've been making. You know, things that we've made back in like 2014, and um, now those names are taken. You know, so there's really a race to, you know, this seems like there's this race for people to fucking, you know, put different strains together just so they could claim a certain brand name on their strain. And, you know, I don't really have a beef with that. That's just, it's just a phenomenon of the market. You can't bitch about it. It's something you can't control. So all you could do is, you know, um, adjust how you're going to react and, and adjust how you're going to approach strain branding. You know, when, when we had the creme brulee, um, uh, we were we're pretty ins you know for the longest time we were in um, Mendocino County now we're based out of Lake Tahoe um, but Mendocino's you know the same thing with Ta Tahoe is it's really insulated 
Um, and this was before, you know, uh, Instagram was, was really huge. You know, Facebook definitely was a thing. But Instagram kind of changed the, the landscape and how people really interface cannabis and learn about different brands. So we called our, we, um, we've been working on a strain since 2012 called Creme Brulee. And when we, the year we dropped it, uh, Bay Exclusives also had a Creme Brulee. And, um, you know, it, it was kind of difficult for us, but I felt, you know, the best way to approach that was just to be respectful, you know. I wasn't trying to step on Bay Exclusives' toes. You know, I hit him up. I was like, hey, man, um, you know, uh, you know, obviously great minds think alike. I just want I just want you to know, you know, I want trying to step on your toes with this, you know. So in, you know, and then other aspects, it really is, you know, who has the biggest reach and, and what genetic is quality enough to, to, to have, you know, their version of creme brulee or their version of rosé, you know, um, you know, get, get, get a certain exposure where people recognize your version as, as the definitive, you know, creme brulee, say, you know, we got lucky with the creme brulee because Bay Excuses creme brulee was, was really fucking good, but we had, um, you know, really good traction with, uh, the clone getting out. And uh, 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 Kevin Drodry was was definitely doing some selections with with Ziggy, and they found some bangers, and so that you know that really you know helped it. So um, when it comes to that, that's a really you know we, one are we running out of strains, and two, what happens if you have a strain that's something already called something? It's just it's just really difficult, you know. We've been working on the sangria for a while. Um, we've been working on that for the past two years, two three years. Uh, last year, I believe it was, I think it was either compound. I think it was either compound or I, I could be wrong. It's one of those really fucking fire breeders, but someone else had a sangria. It was just like a release. Um, and so that's kind of the, the tough decision we have this year is like, are we going to drop the sangria? You know, we already had considerable traction with it in Europe. So we're just going to go ahead and, and drop it, you know? So it's, it's the risk you play because you could, you could risk as a breeder, you could risk pissing off other breeders. You know, which is never a really good idea. You know, and um, you know, uh, and causing a stir because, you know, people have a, an extreme attachment to their work, and uh, definitely certain names. You know, that name, if it's catchy enough, uh, it's gonna take it. You know, this really gonna put legs on this strain where the, the the brand and the quality itself is what's gonna you know establish what's gonna create the platform for longevity for any particular cultivar. So, um, yeah, that's a so it's kind of a difficult one, you know, because I've noticed this year we definitely having a hard time. Uh, like, like we like we made a Merlot, we made a cherry Merlot, and we made a Merlot back in uh, 2014. And uh, there's another really good, really fucking talented breeder. I think his name is Casey out of Yerba Buena in uh, in Oregon. And and, or I think that's Corazon. I could be wrong. We might have to erase that. I might be getting people mixed up, bro. But there's definitely um, – I found out someone bred their Merlot, and I was like, fuck. And it was really good. It was really good. So it was like, cool, we'll just let them have that, you know what I mean? Like we won't even try to, you know, fight for, you know, fight for that. We'll just, you know, find a different name. Um, but – Yeah. Yeah, so. Okay. It's hard to find – these days. You have to get really creative, and more people are, you know, now confectionery – Base strains are, are are pretty hot. You know, we get all credit Jigga for being the first guy to have a confectionery strain. You know, he was definitely inspired me to have you know to name my cookies cross creme brulee. You know, before there was a lot of you know back in 2013, before there was a lot of this on the market. So, um, yeah. What's interesting is 
I talk to a lot of people and we often discuss how, you know, you can draw a lot of strains, their roots back to Chemdog and how quintessentially, you know, it's it's really involved in most everything. But how would you feel about the idea of in, say, 10 years from now, that same analogy is being made with the cookie crew? Because I can almost see it happening. 100%. You can see it happening. You can see the lines that um, see Junkie JBZ's working, who's killing it right now. You know, I don't know these guys personally. I don't have a vested interest in their companies. I'm, 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 I love cannabis. I'm a fan. You know, when I'm doing my work, I try to not focus on what other people, but as a fan, I like to follow other people and see what they're doing because I'm, I'm fucking generally a big fan of cannabis. So you can see JBZ's killing it. And a lot of his stock is based on, um, on different OG Kush um, phenotypes and definitely the cookies. You know, his Kush mints, his, his wedding cake. You know, a lot of this, these are these are cookie derivatives. So, you know, Jigga did something, you know, pretty amazing. The cookies, you know, likes to breed true. It likes to mix with things. And I think we're going to see that in 10 years. I think, you know, we're going to start seeing maybe in 10 years, a lot of these crosses are going to come from cats like Compound or Symbiotic. You know what I mean? I guess it's whatever's fire at the time. But, you know, something as definitive as cookies, hell yeah. There's so many strains crossed with. But what Jigga did with the cookies forced people to really look further into what lines are doing. You know what I mean? I think he had he had a they, the cookie fam had a really good idea, uh, had a really good feel for for what was hot for the market at that time. They had a really good um, uh, eye for selecting, in my opinion, uh, because when when I when I'm working cookies crosses and I'm I'm inbreeding them and I'm, I'm out crossing them, I'm, I'm I'm using different parents. Um, that that I'm assuming that they used, I get to see kind of you know what goes into cookies, and and what's making you know all these strains so fucking fire. What's in cookies that's making these strains so fucking fire? You know. So. Um, um, I guess that brings us to the million dollar question: What do you think's in cookies? Uh, I'm not even touch that. What I do know, um, what I do know is that there's definitely you know we've I've seen a lot of Hindu. A lot of Hindu tendencies. Like if you ever take Mendocino, like Laytonville in particular, Spyrock area, um, you know, Cotto Peak area is a really good um, example of how you know they've been holding you know old Hindu Kush varieties since you know the early to late 70s. And so in these you know old Hindu Kush varieties, which Tom Hill later bred into as the deep chunk, we still have access to these seeds. And so a lot of we were seeing a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels between how the cookies grows and behaves, the frost profile, the noses, and 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 with and with the uh, uh, the Hindus. So you know that could be wrong. You know what I mean? I could you could be wrong, but it's just a general. It was just you know uh, based on years of observation and and having an established pattern. You know we're not fucking scientists, but we definitely know that observation is the cornerstone of evolution. So as breeders and and, and intuitive breeders, because we're all not scientists, we're not fucking doctors, we basically use this observation so we could see what's in a strain. So when it came to cookies, it really made me look. So the cookie fam has cookies and sherbet, and then there's the big debate about if Skittles came from sherbet. And so I I grew cookies next to Skittles. Next to cherry pie, next to sherbet, I grew it next to royal kush, I grew it, and I grew it all next to an old school Urkel. And to me, that Urkel was the most common denominator I found between a lot of those strains. I think a lot of these really exciting flavors um, that Mandelbrot got out of out of his royal kush lines that was was the fucking. I thought it was the sour for years until I took all these cultivars and I grew them next to 
the Urkel. And you could see a striking similarity between all these cultivars. Not so much in the cookies, but more in the in, in de definitely in the Skittles, in, in, in the Sherbs. Um, I saw a lot of uh, telltale signs um, of Urkel. A lot of these really exciting flavors, you know, um, uh, you know, Urkel, Urkel and, and OG are, the, are really the fathers of a lot of these really exciting fruit flavors um, that have like these really strong, grapey, you know, almost vineyard kind of floral, you know, uh, bouquets. So I wish I had my fucking reading notes with me <clears throat> because that, it, it's really interesting where you're getting at. And so I try to look at what's making everything so hot in the fucking market right now. What's the most common denominator, you know, certain, you know, populations of strains. When I say populations, I'm saying like populations of OG populations of, of things that are crossed either with GDP or, or Urkel. Cause you wouldn't have GDP without the fucking Urkel. So the Urkel is like one of the original, you know, purple that, that was the original purple strain that had this fucking incredible, crazy flavor. And, and so I've noticed that going back to the Urkel, you know, the Urkels where you wouldn't have cherry pie without the Urkel, you know, the, the, there were so many uh, similarities between cherry pie and Urkel that was, that was unreal to me. Uh, same thing with the Skittles. The Skittles actually, you know, I don't think it's directly a descendant of Urkel, but you could definitely see, I'm still trying to fucking figure out what's in Skittles, <laughs> but you grow it next to an Urkel. You can't, you can't help but, but to see the similarities. And so that's all we're trying to do. We're just trying to guess and see where straight where, where flavors are coming from. But um, you know, some as definitive as cookies. That's you know, I think that's going to be something that you know, like every like now, all these strains came from sour or chem dog or OG. Five to ten years, there's still going to be strains coming from gelato, cookies, and sherbet. You know what I mean? It's they're good. Yeah, totally. And so. I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask quickly, do you trust the fire loss results on Skittles? You, you know, um, honestly, I, I, I'm going to be real. Since we're on the podcast, the fire loss results were, was what, was what made the fire loss results was provided at the time. It provided the evidence where I was like, obviously, you know, the owners of this Whoever created this strain, it's it's really muddied and it's really foggy. But what Phylos is was you can't argue with genetics, right? That's a fucking science, right? But um, also at the same time, you know, the whole genome hasn't been sequenced too. And we know that. And also the thing with Phylos too, it's it's at the discretion of who, 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 you know, it's there's a lot of human error involved where I work with a lot of breeders I work with a lot of fucking nurseries and anybody a lot of people are going to identify with this where they get a fucking tray of clones and some clones are mislabeled or you get plants from people and some plants are mislabeled so that's that could be a possibility where something was mislabeled and and that happened you know what I mean and this is just based on that one skittles test I haven't gone back to the galaxy and and explored more because as a geneticist it's hard for me to reconcile uh, being, it's it's hard for me to, to reconcile the reality of a lot of people submitting their their genetic data to Phylos, and all this data is siloed. And we're seeing this in genomics companies like 23andMe. We're seeing this with the new genomics blockchain company called Nebula, where you know you have you know these genomics companies where data donors, and in this case breeders and, and growers, donate their DNA, uh, and and that they'll sequence it for a fee. 
And then at the same time, that data for a regular human genomics company, that data is going to be bought by a data buyer. That's, that's why these business models are so fucking successful is because data, you know, data buyers, that's a huge business. Data acquisition for, for, for research and, and especially when it comes to human genomics is, is for, you know, personalized medicine. And so when we see where the, where the industry is going with cannabis, are we going to make personalized strains for people's individual cannabinoid systems? How, how, you know, what's the evolution of genetics going to be? So when it comes to someone like Phylos, you know, I think it's really cool. I have a lot of respect for, for what they did. Um, but just to me as a breeder, I think there needs to be a platform where um, all the data is definitely decentralized and it's still owned outright by the data donors and the data donors have a right to say, you know, what you can and can't do with that data. So, you know, that's, you know, definitely how I feel about that. But, yeah. So I, I, I think I went down a little rabbit hole right there, but. No, um, no, no, that's, that's perfect. I think, I, I, I think what they're, what they're, they're the, they were the first cannabis genomics company, you know, so I've, you know, I have a lot of, you know, respect for that, but there is, there is a, a huge possibility for all this data to be abused. There is, when, when you have siloed data, you, uh, the, the data is in one particular place. I don't give a fuck how much security you have. That's hackable. I mean, this is why blockchain's huge right now. It's because you have things on thousands of servers, and so you can't hack thousands of servers, but you could fucking hack one. You know, and, I, and prior to me, you know, you know, doing cannabis full time, you know, I was kicked out of the army for smoking weed. But while I was in the army, I was, I was intelligence. And so these are things that when it comes to data, you know, information's everything. So I tell all breeders, protect your fucking data. This is, you, you, nobody knows how big the genetics market's going to be. Nobody knows how valuable that data is going to be. There's going to be huge ca- pharmaceutical cannabis companies that are, that I can't wait to buy all this data. So they could, you know, genetically modify strains or they could, or they could, you know, do breeding, you know, marker assisted breeding to, to find certain strains and, and to go and patent those flavor profiles. And that's just one scenario, you know, so it's to me when it comes to the breeders work in their, in, in their data, you got to protect that. But, you know, we definitely got down a rabbit hole because, you know, you're the root of your question was, you know, uh, phylo sequencing, you know, the Skittles and, and phylos work. I, you know, I think that work was great, but at the same time, there just needs to be a platform where, um, all the breeders could still control their data and, and who interfaces it. Yeah. I love it, man. Let's keep going down this rabbit hole. So the next question is, um, you know, you just touched on like big companies and like the legal side and the need for security. I totally agree. We, we see people trademarking things within the industry, but we don't see cease and desist being commonplace. How long do you think it is until that does start to occur and we see what you kind of predicted? Ooh, I guess it's going to really depend on, you know, my, my lawyer always tells me, who, who's, who else, who has the most money for litigation? You know, so whoever has, you know, whatever company owns whatever said trademark, you know, if they have a big enough war chest, it won't be a problem, you know, sending cease and desist letters and backing that up you know, um, legally backing that up and financially backing that up, you know. So I, I definitely see this as um, it's difficult because it's it, a lot of people are worried about exactly what you're what, what you're talking about right now. You know, um, what if someone goes out and trademarks our, our you know, our strain names or our brand um, and, and sends us to cease and desist. So, you know, I think that when you're, you know, most of these cease and desists, unless someone's stealing your brand, you know, try a little harder to come up with something more unique. You know what I mean? So, 
Yeah. Um, you know, like we we named the Testarossa. You know, when Ferrari sends me a cease and desist, it'll be it'll be both a horrible and a great day <laughs> for me because <laughs> we we reached that that level of exposure where Ferrari. You know, so I think it's a good thing. You know, like look at Gorilla Glue. You know, they got beat up by you know by that company. You know, they could have called it GG4, but at the same time, man, Josie Wales and the Gorilla Glue crew, you're fucking. Your 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 name in his in pot history is etched in stone now, you know. So you could all, I think you know there's always you could in, in those instances you could kind of turn shit into sugar, you know. And I think if you know these trademark things are really difficult, you know, trademarking different strain names. How do you you know how do you you know reinforce that? Is it first to file or the first to invent? You know, what if someone invents something and someone goes out and trademarks it? You know, there's this is a really this is a Trying to navigate cannabis right now in regulation to me is like playing three-dimensional chess in a fucking dark room. You're constantly figuring, you're feeling your way things out, you, you learn by making mistakes, you know what I mean? And, and you're really just feeling, and in, in, in there's so many dimensions and facets to it that you're constantly having to adjust fire and adapt to a new set of circumstances. So right now, you used to be able to call your strains whatever, and now if you're not careful, Certain big companies will send you a cease and desist. Like Matt Rise was one of the first people to get a cease and desist. He had the uh, Shatter Brothers, and the Shatter Brothers, and this was uh, coming out of Hopland uh, uh, back in like you know 2000, you know 11, 2012. Matt Rise was one of the first guys to popularize you know ice wax extraction. He was one of the he was one of those guys, and he also had a Shatter company. And the Shatter company had this depiction of fucking Mario and Luigi making Shatter. It, and Nintendo sent those guys a cease and desist, you know? So, you know, it's definitely, you know, it could be a bad thing, but damn, Matt, you know, y- your exposure was to the point where you got Nintendo's attention. So, I don't know. This could be turned into a game by some breeders, but I think it's a slippery slope. I think it's a dangerous one. Yeah, definitely. Well, we hear talks about big players getting involved in the industry, even like, you know, kind of well-known big players. I cringe to say it, but that Dan Bilzerian guy has been in the news for a minute. What do you think about this type of move? Do you think it's just like a fad thing? And do you think overall it's a good or a bad thing to have rich people getting involved in the industry? Because I've kind of heard arguments on both sides, I guess. I mean, here's how I feel about it, you know. Um, You know, with people like Dan Dan Bilzerian... The, the guys, you could tell by that guy's fucking IG feed, he's definitely a weed guy. You know what I mean? If you're in the guns, partying, that kind of lifestyle, you're definitely smoking some fucking weed, right? So it's like, I know a lot of these guys that come from that same, that similar world as Dan's world, and they're fucking weed people, you know what I mean? But that doesn't necessarily mean that you understand the industry. You know, this is kind of like, I'm not using Dan as an example. He's a different example. I don't know the fucking guy. Um, I just know him through his reputation and he's getting, you know, busy investing. But a lot of these corporate guys that are coming into the industry and they think that it's going to work out for them just because they're fucking rich. It reminds me a lot of when Paris Hilton tried becoming an EDM DJ. She got laughed off stage, (laughs) laughed out of the fucking industry. They're like, oh, that's cute. (laughs) Your money's going to be a panacea for lack of talent. Get the fuck out of here. And so that's, that's, you know, how we feel about this is, you know, you have all these corporate cannabis guys coming into the game, and they don't know the game. You, th- people forget this shit's like fucking music. You, you feel me? It, you know, rappers. It, it, rappers are like the growers in our industry. 
you know, breeders are like the producers, you know what I mean? And so you have to, and, and at the same thing with, with it being like music, all the trends in cannabis start at the street level. You know, that, that was the magic of cookies. That was the magic of, you know, you t- take anybody that's, that was big from the Emerald Cup, you know, Dying Breed, Mean Gene, those fucking guys, they're all, they all got hella hill and street credit. You know what I mean? You, you don't get to that level without having that connection, you know, with that street aspect. You know, people forget. It's like, oh, yeah, we're growing medicine, but can, can we all fucking acknowledge for a minute that California was the largest producer of cannabis in the entire country, growing the country's fucking weed, and it all wasn't medicine, guys. You know, and so all that pushing, the trends of what's pushed on the street and what's in demand happens on the fucking street level. And it has to be co-signed on the street. You can't be a famous rapper without being co-signed by someone from the hood or being co-signed by some um, OG in the industry like P. Diddy or J. Prince, you know, from Rap-A-Lot Records who, you know, who helped create, shape and shift fucking hip hop as it is, you know, right, right now. So it's like with corporate guys coming in, I think it's, you know, I think that there's something to learn from them when they have these really, really efficient business proce- uh, business processes, um, and really efficient ways for understanding markets in ways we guys can't, um, you know, understand the market. But just because you have those talents doesn't mean that you could connect with fucking smokers. That's why we say it's like music. You know, an artist's entire fucking job is to connect with people around the world, is, is to put something, take something from nothing, put his heart into the studio and connect with the world. The growers do the same exact thing. You know, breeder lays the track. He, he puts the strain into the grower's hand and the, and, and the grower is going to express that strain in a different way than any other grower, right? And, and so when that weed leaves, when that quality leaves, that usually goes to the street level. Or the quality is going to be acknowledged at the street level. We don't see any corporate cannabis guys coming in and just killing the game right now. You know, selling, you know, selling out the top shelf and the street and everybody collectively agreeing, saying that that corporate cannabis company is putting out top shelf. It just doesn't exist right now. You know, so it's like you could put all the money you can, but still Big Al Exotics out of fucking Santa Rosa. They're the first they're the first company right now with a hundred dollar eighth. You know what I'm saying? It's like so all these guys are trying to start these fucking brands and they all want to be luxury cannabis and put this booth in these really nice packages. But if you don't have fucking street credit and you don't have, you don't have the fucking real DNA, the passion, you're not willing to fucking sacrifice everything for your craft, you ain't going to make it because there's guys out there who are sacrificing everything for their fucking craft and that's the fire. That's the fire. That's w- when it's that good, that's what makes people remember. That's the music. And that's what connects with people, you know what I mean? And so that's what I was like, as an artist, that's what the cookie fam, you know, a lot of people talk shit. I respect the hustle, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I came from fucking nothing. I didn't grow up in Mendo. I, I'm a transplant. I came in Mendo with a broken Beamer, with Texas plates and a broken windshield. I was pulled over all the fucking time. And so to see people, and so to, to interface that street level, and then see people like the cookie fam, use that to their advantage and create, you know, make history. You know, connect with people in that way. Really follow that music while and connect people that way. That's that, that's that's how you're gonna you know reach success. A lot of these corporate processes, these guys are these guys don't know what the fuck they're doing. To be quite honest with you, some of them do, but really it's like you're making money right now. But you know, a lot of people in the game right now, the real true believers like Big Al and Frenchie, we're in this for the rest of our fucking lives. And so that's who the corporate cannabis guys got to deal with. You know what I mean? Just because you have a million dollars and you like making shoes doesn't mean that you're going to be Christian Louboutin tomorrow. 
or are or, or you going to be, you know what I mean? You're not going to be Manolo Blahnik tomorrow just because you have fucking money. This is art. And that's what these corporate guys don't get. It's not a fucking commodity. If you want to play commodities, grow your big ass outdoors in your greenhouses and turn that shit into oil. That's not our fucking market. That's not the breeders and the growers market. You can't shape, you can't create, shape, and shift the history of cannabis through putting boof on the fucking market. You create, shape, and shift the history of cannabis by changing the flavor profiles and getting everybody to agree that's fucking hot. That's you know it. what I mean? Yeah, it, it's like uh, they don't seem to understand that like trends and s- things are started by creative people and then people like them more so take over it. But yeah. you, you touched on this perfect idea, right, with, with Big Al. I had a question perfectly lined up for yeah. that. And so we've kind of seen in response to that $100 eighths of Mac that Caps, you know, Capulator hasn't been too happy. And his argument was that he doesn't want his brand associated with this type of what he would call price gouging. What are your what are your thoughts on that? You know, do you think a breeder gets to have a say that extends that far out, so to speak? You know, let me start from this level. You know, Cap's probably one of the most talented guys in the industry right now. He's creating shit nobody's fucking creating. You know, the only guys coming close to Cap right now is fucking in house and C Junkie, JBZ. So with like, you know. Being a breeder, I understand. I understand why he's upset. I understand why he wouldn't want that because he's the creator. That's his baby. You you know what I'm saying? But on the flip side, I used to have those those reactions too. And then I I realized that when you when you let something out on the market, it's it's going to take its own life. Um, it could either be uh, a, a, a success or it could be a failure. But as a breeder, you have to accept either one of those dichotomies. It's up. You have to because control is a fucking illusion. And that's what breeding taught me is that control is illusion. You can't control shit, especially when you send stuff downrange. You send things down the pipeline, seeds, clones, they're going to take a life of their own. You know, so, you know, with Cap being upset, I just had a hard time understanding why he would, why he was, why he wasn't so receptive um, to that kind of exposure. But at the same time, he, he's really one of those true believers, like one of those really down to earth dudes that that's not in the flash and shit. And he's really about the craft. So like I, I genuinely see where he's coming from and I respect this point. And but I also have another side of me where um, I've always dreamed of there being a luxury cannabis component for people to participate in. You know, that, that was why we started a fishing auto that way back in 2012 is I was like, fuck, if Mendocino and Humboldt can, can, can establish appellations, a form of prestige, right, like that you see in wine, mm-hmm. then that would stabilize the long-term of price of, of cannabis. And so on that same note, like, like if you use Bordeaux as a model, where they, where they created the Bordeaux appell- appellation in the mid-1800s, and um, they got a premium on their wine, it was then up to the participating brands in Bordeaux to make Bordeaux Bordeaux, to make it what it is today. So that was the goal: was to make aficionado this 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 uh, this apparatus that allowed us to to participate in high end cannabis when the day came. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like Big Al was the first to do it. He was the first to sell hundred hundred dollar eighth. And it, everything isn't binary. That's my that's my thing. It's like I'm not mad at anyone per se, but this ain't fucking binary. Just because it's a hundred dollar eighth doesn't mean all samples of Max are gonna be go for a hundred dollars, you know. But 
but we can't ignore that price demographic. You know, people who are students economics, the luxury industry is the only industry that fucking continues to grow despite recessions. And so it's like, you know, if you're a small guy, you don't have a huge fucking corporate war chest, but what you do is you have fucking talent and you have quality. Man, where are these Christian Louboutins going to come from in our industry? Where's the John Paul Gaultiers? Where's the real Louis Vuittons? You know, this is, this is what's fucking possible right now. So that's why I'm telling people, like, stop. You know, don't, don't necessarily, you know, resist this new fucking phenomenon. This is a great thing for small people because small people are the only people who have the prestige, the heritage, and the roots to be considered a luxury brand. Because if money and, and nice branding considered you a luxury brand, then candescent be a fucking luxury brand, but they're not. They're, mm. it's, it's just not. So it's like, you know, when you have, you know, what are the prerequisites for luxury brands? All right, well, it's a unique know-how in a particular area of expertise. Uh, it, um, your, your work has to have an incredible attention to detail. You have to use different ingredients and, 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 and techniques than, than other people use. It's kind of almost like food, too. You know, what separates a $1,000, you know, $300 steak from a $30 steak? You know, ingredients, technique, and timing. And so, and, and also the prestige of the chef preparing it. And so you need all these things to, to, to justify yourself as, as being raw enough to command those fucking prices. You know, who knows the longevity of the $100 eighth, but it's a fucking phenomenon right now. And it's amazing that someone from our community was able to establish that, was able to break that boundary. Someone from our neighborhood broke that boundary and not corporate cannabis. Like, why can't we just realize that? Because I bet you if it was some corporate cannabis guys, everybody would be up in arms. This would be fucked up. Oh, corporate cannabis, we knew this would happen, blah, blah. And then the, the pendulum swings the other way. The small guy with 40 fucking lights selling $100 eights to Migos. They opened that strain up to a wider, more diverse audience just because of price point alone. The laws of economics did take that too. There's an entire demographic of clientele and customer that only discerns value based on the perceived price. If they don't know any better, then, then how do they know? Well, well, price is one indicator where it's like, okay, it obviously has some extra level of prestige, but it better fucking, it, 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 it better be good, which is the whole thing. And, and there's arguments whether, you know, was it worth $100 an eighth? Well, fucking millionaires like Migos, Definitely fucking felt that it was worth $100 an eighth. And so that's the trend that needs to happen, is that when you have these different brands, we're able to interface and open new opportunities for small guys that, are, that got the fire. The big guys don't got the fire. It's the small guys. So this is, a great, this is a great time for small people, man. It was like, I was happy as fuck, man. I called Frenchie. I was like, dude, this is great. Al's getting roasted, but it's good because he, he's killing it. Every, every, if you're angry... Anger can't exist without fear, you know what I'm saying? So it's like a fear-based emotion if you're angry. It's like, what are you scared of is what I want to ask a lot of these people. Not necessarily Cap. I'm not talking to Cap in this um, particular context because I, I wholeheartedly see where Cap's coming from because he's a creator. But with other people, like other people that are really chiming in on, 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 on the subject, it's like, man, why can't you just be happy for, for, for Big Al? I mean, that, yeah, that, that's Capulator's beef, but something was done in the industry that's going to help the small guy more than anything else. You know, this is a huge, it's going to be a huge economic force for, for, for guys that are at the top of their game that got this shit together and know how to communicate and sell their strains. You know, right? you know what I mean? And right now, Big Al was able to do that. Cap's going to be able to do that too. He doesn't want to count, he wasn't going to gouge people. You know, so it's like a lot of these growers are going to come out, you're going to see crazy, there's going to be a price war, 
but there needs to also be a spectrum of brands. It just can't be affordable cannabis. It just can't be affordable wine and affordable alcohol. You know, people gave me shit about my prices for years. I'm just like, deal with it. I'm sorry. Like, I only make certain, you know, so many strains per year. You know, I fucking sift through a lot of strains. And so this is like, you know, only recently like a couple hundred boxes of each strain anyway. So, yeah, you know, yeah. so, but it's it's really in the eye of beholder. Yeah, I, I agree. And I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who have these opinions. And what I find to be the most interesting part of it all is that, these same people aspire to have, you know, luxury cars. It's like they're okay with luxury something else, but not in our industry. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like, you know, essentially we're, you know, there are your people who like to ball out in our industry. You know, the cool thing about the industry, which is, you know, one of the positives is that we do have a lot of humble people. There's a lot of humble people that, that, that don't need the flash that don't need to, you know, when Swerve was blowing up back in the day, posting pictures of his Jaguar, motherfuckers getting hated on. You know, that's not necessarily our culture. You know what I'm saying? It's like if, if you're flossing and you're in the weed game and you were putting that on Instagram, you were wrong because you're basically dry snitching on yourself. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like it's it, it, so, you know, but, but I like the fact that the community has this sense of humbleness to them because humbleness is and, and, and lack of ego is what's needed to, to create true craft. Um, but I think once you create that craft, there needs to be a mechanism to be able to open that craft to what's the highest potential this, you know, our market has as boutique craftsmen. You, we can't do, we can't get in a fucking price war with corporate cannabis. That's for damn sure. But you know what? There's definitely this huge un, underserved demographic of 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 uh, you know of you know upscale oriented customers that want to indulge in this level of weed and it fucking exists you know cats like big al cats like fucking you know capulator and fucking compound these guys are growing the fire like crazy fire you know and so but i think that we they also they everybody collectively deserves more i think you spent time in the game and and you really cut your teeth and you sacrificed everything. I think that it's a great fucking moment when when the market could acknowledge that you know your your stuff is worth you know you know X amount you know. So I think you could love her to hate it. You know you could sit in front of a Rolex shop, you know with a Timex on your wrist and fucking bitch about life all day, saying oh my watch tells time better and you guys are ripping people off. But that's just like that's just like you guys got to shift your focus, your awareness from that particular perspective. And, and broaden your horizon. It's like, oh, what, what are the opportunities in this? Because if Big Al could do it, how many other people could do it? And so, like, we don't know what the longevity of these price points are, like, first off. But, but we do know that the luxury, you know, luxury clientele demographic continues to grow worldwide. You know, that, that, that's a fact. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we definitely know that, and cannabis is quickly becoming uh, international. Canada has already taken international. U.S. is we're really behind right now on that, you know, because we can have a serious edge. But when it does go international, man, when it does go international, you, we have to be cognizant of this entire spectrum of customer. Who do you want to sell to? You know, and that's cool if you want to be Jack Daniels. That's cool if you want to be Everclear. You want to be Budweiser. We need these people. We need those price points in the ecosystem to differentiate ourselves. You know, fucking Chateau Montrachet at $30,000 a bottle needs box wine to create that fucking huge chasm of separation that reminds people, this is why you're paying X amount for this bottle of wine. And it's like, I want to see that in cannabis. It's always been my dream to do that. You know, we've tried doing that, 
You know, we've been doing that with, you know, we got really lucky. We've been doing that with seeds, you know, for the last seven years. But, you know, when it came to flowers, anybody could smoke a flower. Only a few people could grow seeds. You know, you have to really know, you know, kind of what aficionado is working with or know us from back in the day to kind of really understand our value. You know, we don't think that, you know, we're big players in the genetics game. We just really, really passionate about what we do. But only so many people could grow seeds. But anybody, anybody could smoke a flower. Anybody could smoke hash. That's what Frenchie's power is. Fucking smokes out thousands of people every month. So everybody knows what Frenchie is, right? And so the same thing is with, 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 with fire-ass growers. Anybody could experience that. And so it's like if anybody could experience that, what place in the market do you choose or wish to participate in? You know, why limit yourself? If you're worth that, you know, really, like, is, is being aware better than being humble? You know, or is being humble better than being aware? You know, which, which, which of these paths are we going to choose as, as breeders, growers, and marketers? We can't, we have also have to see, like, just because you're creating a craft, it's up to you to fucking now communicate this and market it to the world. It's value. Yeah. You know, so it's like, it's, it's all, everybody has choices. And Big Al made a choice, and it was a great choice. And I just think it, it was really, it was. I thought it was just really unfortunate that, you know, the tension between you know Big Al, and and Cap is there, you know, because you know the, the two guys are, are are genuinely good people. You know, I never met Cap, but my partner Leo, you know, knows him, and he says, you know, great. Everybody I know that knows Cap says great things about him. So he's a nice guy. Same thing with Big Al. He's like the most humble, chill fucking dude. He just loves weed, and so it's like, I think, you know. It, it it's unfortunate but there's also a, a really cool potential for, for for people to come back you know to come back full circle and you know um, maybe collaborate you know someday down in the future you know because that's powerful what happened you know whether you like like that i would have sent a limo full of fucking women to big al's house if he did that with my strain that's just me personally <laughs> just, just to start the thank you process you know what i mean yeah. Um, cause we need that edge. Small time guys, boutique cultivators need a distinct edge over corporate cannabis. And this is what's happening right now. You know, like these guys are breaking down fucking doors so other boutique cultivators can participate in these markets, interface these higher levels of society. Because a lot of people fucking forget, man, even though a lot of trends happen at the street level, trends also par- happen parallel at these really high end levels too. You know, there's also there's also very rich trendsetters too. So we, we can't ignore. You know, if you're really in the weed and you and your job is to get your strain and you really want your strain to connect with people, not through hyper bullshit, but literally to be shared and connect with people because your work is good. That's something magical, man. Yeah, totally. So I think we might jump out of this rabbit hole for a moment and go down a different one. Um, I just wanted to. <laughs> just wanted to loop back onto a point you made almost at the start of the interview. You mentioned the creme brulee. You had a bit of luck in that the clone got out there, and it brought up this really interesting point of what is it like to to have a clone of yours that's like a really nice one that's been found, selected, and it gets out there. Is it a good or a bad thing? Because on the one hand, it's like it, you know, obviously there's good sides to it, but at the other hand, it's like, well, if people can get access to the clone, they're probably not going to buy the seeds. So, how do you feel about it? Is it is it good or is it bad? Fuck no. Like that's 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 a that's whoever's whoever's logic that was this is wrong. <laughs> like uh-huh. right, I mean like look at all the cookie cross seeds. You know if cookie clone was on the market, you know you wouldn't have you wouldn't have that the success of those crosses. I think it's I think it's it's hugely. I used to hoard, 
so this is me talking from experience and, 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 and somewhat regret that some of my best work I didn't put into the market, you know, you know, um, and that was kind of one of the things I learned uh, working with Kevin Jodry back in the day, you know, who had one of the biggest nurseries at the time at Humboldt. And, um, you know, in order for your shit to be on the market, you literally like in order to be hot in the market, you have to have thousands of growers growing this shit. And you have to have thousands of pounds, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds a year straight touching people's hands across the country, across the world. You know, so that doesn't happen unless you let the clone out. You know, so whatever, you lose ownership. You know, there's this, there's this false assumption. People are going to argue with me this. There's this false assumption that, oh, if I'm like the only one with this cut, I'm going to hoard it. And I'm going it, it, to it, it, you, you limit its growth. If you don't let it out, because, yeah, you could show the world that you're the best at growing, you know, any particular, you know, this particular strain. But growers and breeders, we're all competitive people, like by nature. Like that's why we, you know, we compete with ourselves to get better than ourselves, why people get better. But we love showing our shit to each other. We love that. And so people love to say, oh, that was your cookies. Look at my cookies. You know, and that's part of that's part of the culture, too. What helps a strain get out there is when it's a joy to grow and it's also, it's also, it doubles as, it doubles as, you know, um, an opportunity for you to be able to, to express, you know, what your best possible effort is, you know? So I think if you have a fire strain, you gotta let, you gotta let it out. The market's gotta test it, you know, cause really the market, you could say it's fire all day long, but if people ain't cloning it and pound, you know, pounds aren't flowing in the clubs, cause people could clone it. You could have a million clones out there, but if the clubs or the, or the streets ain't buying that weed, Again, they'll buy it. You know what I mean? I remember when Barry White came out. It was the frostiest strain that hit Mendocino in a long time. And at one year, everybody grew it. And everybody bought it, but one time. You know, <laughs> so it's like, you get repeat buyers. You know, it's like, people say, oh, cookies is hype. It's not fucking hype, man. Millions of people are still buying it. And they come back and they buy it again. That's not hype. That's that's real. Yeah, I totally agree. So, you know, to have that, you got to put your strain out there. You got to put the clone out there, which... You know, I've I've fell I've fall I've I've fell short on, you know, the past you know five five years, you know. But I learned from you know, I had to learn from my mistakes to go. Okay, really, the right way is to let it out. You know, will you lose ownership of it? Cool, but if you really want to test your work against the market and see how hot you are as a breeder, you got to put that shit out there. Yeah, good plan. So, take us back. When did aficionados start in your mind? Like uh, 2011. And what was the first project? You know, it kind of grew out of, um, you know, I always had my, I was, you know, I started growing when I was in Germany and um, I went to Amsterdam a lot, smoked a lot of weed, smoked a lot of hash, always brought seeds back. Um, I just thought it was cool that, you know, I could collect these seeds. Then I started hanging out with some German college students that were growing organic indoor and um, they were breeding, like they were crossing their super silver haze to like, um, you know, straight up land races like, like Afghanis and old school, like not not even land races, but old school like Black Dominus, like shit you don't see, you know, anymore. And, you know, that was really my crash course into, you know, the next level of growing, you know. And he, this dude was just having fun. He wasn't like a serious breeder. He was like, uh, I hate buying seeds, so I just make my own seeds so I don't have to buy seeds. And it turns out good. And I thought that was cool, you know. So um, after I, you know, got out of the army in Germany, I, uh, you know, brought my seed collection back to the States and, um, you know, met with, you know, the guy who became my mentor, you know, Mendocino Mike, 
then he took me up, he took me up, but you know, that aficionado kind of, you know, was created out of, you know, when I was growing, when you're growing the best possible cannabis, it just comes logical that you have to breed your own strains, right? So whether you have a, a, a strain in clone form, you know, it's going to come to the time where you have to start breeding your own strains to have a unique edge over the market. Like if you get to the point where you can read the market and, and, and see what people want, you know, that's when I really started taking breeding seriously was when I was in Mendo with Mike and, um, uh, I, then I started on my, then I, then I got my own scene and I did what every other grower does uh, to make ends meet. You gotta, you gotta do business, right? You got, you got to help your friends out. You got to make sure that, 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 that the right things flow through the right pipelines. So the cool thing about that is you, I was able to like read the market in a way where I was like, okay, I think people want this. And so I'd make a cross and I'd test it out and I'd grow it out and the buyers would like it. And then it came to the time where buyers were coming and they wanted just all sours. They wanted all chem dogs. They want all sours. But they were buying chem dog too. And this was like the headliners before, you know, OG, you know, really hit the market and crazy bulk um, up at Humboldt Mendo's like chems and sours were like the biggest thing. And so these repeat guys that were coming back and making sure that things were flowing, they wanted, uh, they was like, look, man, if you could hook our farmers up with, with, with a strain that smells like this consistently, then we'll, we'll buy the whole crop. And so that was really, I was like, holy fuck, I could probably, I could like, because I've seen so much product flow, you know, in Mendocino and Humboldt, I had a good idea for like, you know, who the best growers were, what the hottest genetics were. I knew that even if the, 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 the buyers weren't coming into town, that even if, even if this wasn't what they were looking for, all I had to do is open the fucking bag. So like, I've, all I, f- I found out early that all you had to do is exceed expectations. So we created a Camdog strain and uh, gave it to our friends we grew it the buyers bought it all and um that was we exceeded the expectations of that chem dog and we ended up entering that that next year and so you know when it came to aficionado it was kind of like oh let's start a seed company you know i was really inspired to start the seed company from shiloh massive before he started dying breed um you know he had this project called massive seeds that he was doing like way back in the day and, you know, that was like, you know, that was really my first interface into like, you know, the seed breeders world. Because all the breeders I knew, like the seed breeders world, that was like the cannabis industry. All the breeders I was getting my seeds from in Mendo, you know, if it wasn't from Europe, were just like these old, these old growers, you know. And so I was paying through the ass for OG seeds. Like that's why we came up with our particular price point because I was buying $50 a seed OG seeds back in 2010, you know, 2000, you know, 2011, like that was a real thing for me because it was worth the investment. So, you know, it, it wouldn't have been without those strains being in a Mendo with Mike that aficionado just ended up starting to happen. You know, it, it just came as a natural process of, I was definitely influenced by Shiloh, but I was able to take the strains that I had, I collected, you know, I made with Mike and I had myself as an, as a, as a, as a way to, you know, communicate, you know, what if we could be, you know, one of the best players in Mendocino and how can we communicate that? And then, you know, we ended up winning the cup, our first cup in 2012. And that kind of really, you know, really helped, you know, launch us into orbit with, with people, you know, knowing who we were, more buyers came up to us, you know, more people that wanted, you know, a certain flavor. We, we were really good with gas. 
I got really lucky with that. You know, my, my OG was really good at, you know, selecting things for gas, crossing things for gas. And, you know, my later friend, you know, Alan Atkinson, who, who founded Probiotic Farmers Alliance and Grokashi, uh, he was really good at selecting for gas and selecting for good flavor, too. And so, you know, learning from all these people, um, having that, you know, um, that, you know, opportunity to, you know, to meet Shiloh through Alan and to, to, to get my first glimpse at, you know, what really the cannabis industry was, like the above ground cannabis industry. That was a different world for me. I was completely off grid and black, you know, for a long time. You know, I was kicked out of the army. So when I was kicked out of the army, it was like, fuck, it's either sink or swim. And I definitely ain't getting a job. So I had to make it work, you know. So, you know, transitioning from straight, you know, the underworld to seeing this kind of medical, quasi-medical, you know, cannabis movement happen in Cali was, was just fucking mind-blowing. You know, it was like it was a different world for me. So that's really, you know, what Fishinato was born out of. And at what point did you decide to bring Frenchie on board? And more importantly, it was kind of like a bit of a forethinking thought on your part. What was it about Frenchie that you thought, like, this is going to bring something new, a, a twist to the usual? We, he met, I met him after I got off the stage at Emerald Cup in 2012. Um, cause I remember he cut, he came up to me and he was, he gave me this big hug. He didn't even know me. And he was just like really happy that he was like, cause a lot of people, when they win the cup, you know, they, they basically pull their dick out and they flex, ah, oh, you know, and I, I never thought I would, was going to win. Fuck all. I was like, if I get top 20, I'm at least part of the cool kid crowd. You know what I mean? I just wanted to be acknowledged as a grower. That was my thing. I just wanted like my whole, you know, it wasn't like I bred so I could keep growing fire for myself and so I could keep hitting the, the highest ticket possible. You know what I mean? But when I met Frenchie, man, he was just really happy that when I won, I thanked my soil guy. <laughs> I thanked Jim Rogoff for making me the, some of the dankest compost in the world. And I was just, you know, super humbled, you know, just, to, you know, to, to be lucky enough to, you know, to be able to express a plant to that level, you know, where we got. And so when Frenchie, you know, when I met Frenchie, it was just kind of like this instant connection, you know what I mean? Like, you know, when you meet somebody, you swear you've seen them before, but you know you've never seen them before, but you have a feeling you've known them before. And that was the thing, you know, I see this guy, you get that feeling, then he opens a jar of hash. I never smelled hash this fucking loud, man. It it would it looked like it was some MK Ultra from some growers down in Santa Cruz. And and I was like, dude, I've never smelled hash like this. He was like, if your fucking hash doesn't smell as loud or if louder than your flowers, then you fucked it up. And I was like, dude, we gotta do and it was right there, like really that, that five minute span, I was like, dude, you're my hash guy, like forever. And we've been loyal to each other ever since, man. Like I've never taken other people's opportunities to make hash for them or have other people make hash. It was like, you know, Frenchie's one of those day ones, man, where it's like, you know, you have a special connection and it was like, it just ended up, it wasn't planned. We, we ended up just being really compatible and we had, we ended up sharing the same vision. You know, he's French and he was a, he was a bag designer back in the day and he has a certain idea for aesthetics and, and for and for refinement and that's what i always aspired to to have those sensibilities you know i kind of grew up in you know, my family wasn't rich you know they were middle class but you know i had to earn and work for everything i had as a child you know nothing was given to me so um i have i've always appreciated people that had that 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 um that 
that sense of aesthetic that Frenchie has, that sense of refinement that we all wish we could pursue at a higher level. So, you know, Frenchie was the biggest blessing, man. He was the, he's been the most solid guy in my life for the past seven years. Like, uh, he's family, you know. So I'm really lucky that, you know, we, we share the same vision on a lot of things. And, you know, when it comes to organic growing, it comes to where the, where the company should go. You know, Frenchie's definitely, you know, he's, he's the fucking dude where I'm like, if I make a big move, I run it by Frenchie first. Okay, Frenchie, what do you think about this? Yeah, for sure. I know what it's like to uh, to have a guy like that that's solid. It's good. So I guess kind of leading into the next question, the previous idea of like you guys are expanding beyond the typical breeder. And I think that people would commonly identify cookies as doing this, you know, expanding into like a lifestyle type of brand. Do you feel like this is the natural progression for all breeders or? And, Why not? And, yeah. Why the fuck not? So, some breeders are going to choose to participate at that level and, and some don't. You know, so some won't want to, and and that's up to them. You know, um, I think it's cool, man. Like, why not, man? If your shit's that hot and people want to support you, and hop and hop on your train, then, man, that's a that's that's a cool thing, man. Like, I respect people's hustle. A lot of people like to hate on people's hustle, but a lot of people forget that these are just ideas. One day, you know, and they and they, and they fruited. Now they're now it's fruited into a huge fucking brand. That took a lot of work, you know what I mean? And so it's like if a breeder's willing to do that and do all that work, man, um, you know, I fucking salute you. You know, I have my own plans for how I want to express my merchandise, you know, later in the future. But, you know, it was just to me, I wanted to really, you know, I, I really want to focus on that craft and not go, all right, you know, because once you start, you know, I'm a control freak. So if I if I did that, I'd have to control the, you know, the the, the merchandising and the branding of it all. But for me, it's just as a breeder, I wanted to focus on that craft. So when the time comes um, for me to branch out, then, you know, hopefully it will be the right time and I'll execute it right. But I think breeders, I think it's great, man. Turn it into a huge lifestyle brand because it is a lifestyle. People hate on everything. But this is like the cannabis lifestyle is fucking amazing. And it's a lifestyle that when you're in it, you never want to leave it. And everybody dreams of being in it. And so... You know, I don't understand why people, you know, can hate on these brands, you know, like, you know, Jungle Boys gets a lot of flack, you know, and we can, and a lot of people around the globe could talk a lot of shit about Jungle Boys, but why is, why are they the only one making that hustle work the way they're working it? You know what I mean? There's like, that, there's magic in that, you feel me? It's like, you know, their whole concept approach to branding, and I don't know these guys, Frenchie knows them, he's really cool with them, but I just respect hustles in general, because all this shit came from fucking nothing. You know what I mean? And you're able to co- to connect with people in this manner where they want to wear your fucking clothes and support you and communicate to the world that these are the motherfuckers I support, whether you agree with it or not. It's like music. Not everybody listens to Future. Not everybody listens to, to these new rappers. Some people choose to listen to older rappers like Biggie and Tupac, but that's at your discretion. But that doesn't negate the fact that these clientele are there and people want to fucking support these motherfuckers. People want to get behind certain brands and be like, this is, this is my identity. I'm a weed person, and I identify with this spectrum in the weed community. Like, that's fucking cool, man. I think there should be more brands that come out and flex and, and, and try to do a lifestyle brand. Because if you're raw and it's real, they'll catch on. Yeah, certainly. What is, what's the saying? Real, real, disease real or whatever. <laughs> God. Yeah, real, like, yeah, that was like a, I, I didn't learn that one until I came in the industry either, like like the above ground industry, like this whole 
real recognize real shit. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have that when I was hustling. It was like, were you on time and was the money right? You know what I mean? It's like not real recognize real. Is this motherfucker does what he says? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's like the whole real record. I mean, it's like it's subjective. Yeah. What's real? You know what I mean? Let's. I mean, to me, to me, what's real is like you know I look at it as authenticity in, in in the game. Yeah. You know, really sacrificed it, and you really you were really you know, you you were really in the culture. You know, working for you know working to better your craft and really going to the shows connecting with people you know that's the real work that's the real hustle you know what i mean yeah yeah i think there's there's definitely tidbits of truth you can draw from it like the idea of are you doing what's good for you or what's good for you as well as good for the community yeah i mean it's an interesting one but (laughs) yeah that's like fucking is a good one it's like you know do you want to do what's good for the community or do you want to break boundaries so it's like if you want to do what's good for community you went and sold a hundred dollar eighth but if you want to break boundaries and make history, you sell a hundred dollar eighth. So it's like, what do you do? I'm the kind of person I'd rather make history. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, uh, the, a lot of people in the community were against the high prices of aficionado back in the day, but we wanted to make a point. It wasn't because we, th- you know, we thought we were the best breeders, you know, cause you know, I was working with me and Gene back then and Johnny Q and, um, it was about showing the fucking very best that Emerald Triangle had to offer. So I think it's like, you know, how do you want to communicate to the world what you do? Yeah, totally. Well, that brings us to the next question. I was going to say, the pricing of seeds is an interesting topic. And in the past, you guys have copped a bit of flack for the seed pricing. How would you generally answer someone who is, say, critical of a more expensive pricing model in general? It better be good. (laughs) (laughs) It better be good. That's the only reason why it works. You know, some... And, you know, let me, let me say this straight up for everybody. When you're playing genetics, it's, 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 a, it's a game of statistics. It's just a matter of time before you release something that's not good. It's, it's a, there's going to be some seeds and a fire-ass batch of seeds that aren't going to work out for people. You know what I'm saying? So if you're going to compete at a certain price point, um, your testing better be on point. Your selection better be on point or you're going to get fucking roasted. You know what I mean? You have to have incredibly high standards. And I think, like, depending on how you choose to price your seeds, that's the hardest part. What is this worth? You know what I mean? Just because you say it's worth something doesn't mean people are going to buy it. That's the hard part about that. You know, it's like, you know, we got lucky. You know, we tend to sell out every year. But whenever we think about what do we price this at, you know, is 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 that's a that's a huge conversation for us every single fucking year you know things are changing now you know back in the day when we first came out we were part of part of aficionado was so we could establish you know one of the world's first luxury cannabis brands but really it was we wanted to sell we wanted to sell to the kind of guys we were selling packs to we wanted to sell people that like didn't look like weed people but we're moving a lot of money in the weed industry a lot of your growers don't look like weed people they look regular people and those are the kind of guys I wanted, I wanted to market to. I was like, if you were willing to spend $500 on a box of seeds, you either, one, would do everything fucking possible to make sure you're going to grow the fucking shit of that $500 box of seeds, or two, you're raw enough where you're going, damn, I got 10 seeds, worst case scenario, I'll get 50% females, that's five plants. Back in the day, the reasoning was like, oh, at five plants, that's five to eight pounds a plant. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to make my investment way over you know, so, but those, but that, that, that market dynamic doesn't exist anymore. You know what I mean? Um, you know, now 
fire genetics are accessible at all kinds of price points. You know, so when it comes to pricing, you know, we're always going to have a high price point strain because there's things that we've been working on for a while and that just stand out. But, you know, um, it's definitely something that needs to change with the times, you know. Yeah. Um, we're always going to have our, our 500 you know, to $800 boxes of strains. Those will sell out, and people always auction those. We don't have control over that, and that inflates the value too. But you know, um, I also know what it's like to not have the money to spend on like $500 of, you know, boxes of seeds. So you know, we definitely have some more accessible strains coming out this year for people that you know, want to be able to experience it, but will offer at a lower price point. Is it going to be like less quality? We're actually like, you know, some of our best we're going to put at that lower price point. You know what I mean? Just to make a point, you know, because we understand that. Yeah, but, the, but you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult concept when, you, when people talk about pricing because it also goes in like your brand. Like what's, what's the goal of your price? You know what I mean? Like I'm only going to make these strains once. So that's why we price them that way. But I think if you're going to make them over and over, then they have to not be – then – that level of prestige pricing doesn't work. You're going to end up frying yourself. People are going to feel like they got cheated or you're just, you're going to turn into another doggy's nuts. Remember doggy's nuts back in the day? They were selling <laughs> seed packs yeah. and everybody was upset with them. <laughs> yeah, I remember like, that. Like, come out of the blue selling $700 seed packs, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, okay. So, I, that's it brings up a good question, you know. What would you say to someone if they were after one of your more expensive strains specifically, but they just didn't really have the financial freedom to get it? You know, do you have any kind of creative solutions? Um, you know, usually we, we hear a lot of these. I stay off the gram. Doing, I don't do any business on IG. That's my rule. So um, it kind of sucks I can't interface with consumers on that level on IG because when we do have that interface, it's usually on a show. Yeah. You know, I meet all kinds of people at shows as like, you know, they'll show us a lot of love and they'll be like, yo, really, I don't have enough money for this, but I have this. I'll hook you up, man. It's like, you know, especially like, you know, I, I give a lot at the show, like for a year, they didn't want me to sell seeds at the show because they were like, bro, you, you hook everybody up. You need, you're too fucking nice. You're like, you know, because I really just want people to grow them, you know, like aficionado, yeah. the brand and the pricing is to show the world. This is the potential of Northern California. So I want people to stop taking it seriously. I'm trying to do something for us so we can, you know, so I'm trying to be a part of this ecosystem so more people could, you know, build up this ecosystem to make more high-end brands across the world. You know, I mean, through, I mean, across California. Yeah, well, I, I think you could argue it'll extend across the world. I don't think a lot of people are familiar with your refund policy, but let's just kind of put it into question form. What would you say to someone if they said they were kind of unhappy with a pack of your seeds or something along those lines? And does that ever really happen? Yeah, it happens all the time. I mean, it's genetics, you know what I'm saying? Everyone has different rooms and, and environments. It's not going to – it's a fucking seed. And so it, it depends. Everybody grows differently. Um, and our seeds are grown in a certain environment. So it definitely happens. But um, I try to make an effort, you know, if we've had a few email accounts shut down um, and get hacked over the past few years, so it, it's been, you know, kind of hard for us to get back to people. Um, but we always try to replace the packs, especially if it's at a show, I'll just hook you up. If you're, like, unhappy and you show me your certificate, like, this was garbage, it's like, I'll just give you a pack. It's like, here you go. You know, but if, if you hold on to the seeds, you don't open them, we'll buy it back from you. But, you know, we'll, we'll only pay the wholesale price because that's what we get paid. We'll pay you what we get paid. You know what I mean? And I do that every year. I can't wait till people come up to the booth. Can't wait for that shit. 
people to fucking sell me back my seeds because <laughs> the first three years we sold everything like everything <laughs> so we you know we didn't have a whole lot of white cashmere seeds left we probably had like 20 30 of those left and so like when someone came by the, the booth last year and they sold me back they wanted to they wanted to, um me to buy back two boxes of cashmere i, I gave them you know more than the wholesale price at that point because i really wanted those fucking packs yeah and it's an interesting point and i think that it might be something which continues into the future. Do you think that's just a part of the the high kind of prestige and value of the brand, or do you think this might even be adopted yeah, by it was, the Yeah, the, the function of it was, so your strains always have value. You know, if Louis Vuitton follows a certain model. That's why you never find a Louis Vuitton at a fucking thrift store. Because if you take a real, authentic Louis Vuitton, Perspect Louis Vuitton, they'll give you cash for it. It always holds a cash value. And I was inspired by that um, when doing Aficionado. I was like, you know, if, if these things are still sealed up and, and the, the, the vials and the boxes are set up in a way so we could preserve these fucking things, you know, um, I'll buy it back. We will buy it back. And we thought that was a great thing. I can't that's, – that's, I'm stoked every time someone keeps a box long enough for me to buy back because chances are I probably don't have boxes of that strain because we sell everything, you know. It's, we sell everything we make we, we make we make new stuff every year and you know um you know that's just how it is so over the past say five to ten years at least as far as i can see there's been this growing demand for the use of growing from seed outdoors you know there's plenty of advantageous region uh, reasons particularly the taproot and all the uh, benefits it brings with it with that in mind do you consider the idea of catering to these kind of outdoor growers who are looking for like your 50 or your 100 pack seeds? Yeah. So, um, when you were local in Mendocino and Humboldt, I had a, a, there was this rule for a long time. If you knew me, if you, if you knew me personally or, or you knew me through a friend, you know, I'd get, and you, I'd give you free seeds if you lived anywhere between Arcata and Ukiah. <laughs> you know, so, for the longest time, I was, you know, and that was kind of, you know, the thing with, you know, back in the day with when I was working with me and Gene is we always had the homies come by the booth and we always gave them seeds because, you know, we came in from a point like, you know, even though like when I was making my own seeds and doing my own thing before aficionado, I was like just giving them away to people like, hey, how does, you know, see how this is. This is something I made, you know, with Mike back in the day. You know what I mean? Like, tell me how it is. And so it's like, I've always given the homie seeds. So it's like, what am I going to do? I'm going to charge you now that I have a company. So it's like, I always, you know, made an effort to show love to the growers that made all the magic. I always saw the growers in Humboldt and Mendo as the, the, the key, the key, the, the, the key clientele that, that could help are these strains, you know, reach a new level, you know? So when it came to those guys, you know, hell yeah, you know, but these are mostly on a personal basis where I'll, you know, I'll break you off like 50 to 100 seeds, you know, to, to sift through, you know, but we're seeing that that's going away now, you know, the, the days of growing big ass outdoor plant patches, you know, that's going to get smaller and smaller because the name of the game now is clones and tissue culture and getting that consistent canopy. So, you know, the, the breeding is going to change according to that. We're always going to breed outdoors. We're always going to breed for outdoor people. We're always going to have those strains because that's what we are before anything. I was a fucking outdoor grower. You know, that's like, that was my passion. And so like, you know, we'll, 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 we'll make some strains indoors, but we'll always make our best strains outdoors under the sun. Like that's, just, that's a rule we just can't fucking deviate from. 
And do you believe that seeds produced organically under the sun give like the most healthiest and optimal seeds? Or do you think that... 100%. 100%. People say it doesn't matter. And I go, okay, cool. Cool. Let's take your pregnant wife, stick her in a closet for nine months, and feed her pizza and fucking soda. You know, put a light on her. She'll probably survive, but I guarantee that fucking baby ain't going to turn out good. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And so it's like the, the inputs, 30,000 genes are in the cannabis plant. Every input matters, right? And so if we look at that and we're geneticists, we're like, all right, I want to give this DNA everything it needs to be successful for the next person that's going to work these lines. I need to give this genetic everything that it evolved to uptake and have. I mean, people forget that. This, this phenomenon of, of cultivation is wholly happened in the span of the last 60 years. You know what I mean? And, it, and in big cannabis cultivation, this phenomenon has only happened, you know, fuck, the last 10 years. And so it's like the, people have to also remember, like, this plant evolved for millions of years under sunlight and organic inputs. And, and, and that's just a fucking fact. <laughs> so when it comes – so that's our, that's our, that's the, our core philosophy is providing the plant's genetics everything that it, it needs. You know, everything that it evolved to excel with, you know, and then we'll try to supercharge that aspect. Um, but I think that nutrition of your seeds is so important, man. When I see people fertilizing seeds with, with salt-based nutrients, I'm like, it's, it's not the same. It's not the fucking same. You take, you take two prize fighters, right? You could take two prize fighters. Like, let's say we take two clones and, and, and you fucking make seeds that are, that are, that are inorganic. With, with salt-based inputs grown on walk wool and you make seeds that are made in soil that have a high amino acid content that have you know um a high content of organic matter that have a high content of of, of minerals you know because a lot of the problems isn't an mpk problem in plants it's a mineral deficiency so it's like you know in genetics the genetic you know building blocks are all built on these essential minerals and amino acids you know, so it's like it's essential to have these inputs present in the soil and present in your regiment to just get your fucking seeds and your babies to have their very best start. So if you take a prize fighter and you feed one, you know, you feed one the right diet he's supposed to eat and the other one you feed him vodka and pizza before a fucking fight, you know, you're definitely going to see the difference. You know what I'm saying? And I see the difference in people's genetics when they, when they don't, when they make seeds without, without organic inputs. I see a distinct difference. Yeah, totally. So how would you feel about people making F2s and F3s of your line for their own use? And I guess in general, how do you feel about people breeding with your work? That's the biggest gift you could do for me. It's like, it, it's, you know, people think that the gift stops when you buy the seeds and you grow it out. But, man, when you choose to, to F2 it, F3 it, F4 it, man, that's awesome. Kill it. Get it, man. Make that line your line. Because at least you're working it. They're doing the work. You know what I mean? There's a lot of work that goes into that shit. And so it's like anybody who's willing to do that, man, like nothing but love and respect, man. Like, fuck, let's share some seed stock. Give me some of yours, I'll give you some of mine. You know, it's, it's, it's all kinds of opportunities for that, man. So when, when I see people work the genetics, man, that's just like the, the, the greatest gift. It's like the best complete circle to me. It's better than, the, it's better than you know, than selling the seeds. It's, that's, that's the... To me, that's the the, um, the validation as a breeder. When not only has it expressed itself good enough in flower to meet their you know to, to meet their expectations, but it's exceeded their expectations to a point where they choose to continue working that line. And so that's just the hugest, most humbling gift to me. 
So in a previous episode, we had Mean Gene on and he said he really enjoyed all the work he's done with Aficionado. But one thing he felt was that it carried a bit of a labor with it for like being the absolute best. And he said that he just felt like that was a lot of pressure. Do you kind of agree with that? Do you feel the pressure yeah, sometimes? I remember when Gene was talking about that, man. Because he, he would have, every year, he would have something that was crazy fire. And but it would be the but I don't think it's good enough for aficionado. Like having to meet that bar is pretty fucking stressful. I'll tell you what, bro. <laughs> like yeah. just to keep doing that and me- meeting these expectations is 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 uh, I think I was a little short sighted when I first came up with that concept. But I'm already all the way in. I got to keep swimming. I can't drown now. I got to keep swimming. I got to hold that line. And so I 100% feel Gene on that and like. You know, when you're trying to le- meet that level of quality and expectation, it's almost um, unsustainable. Really, if you really think about it, if you want to be hella real, like it's it's almost unsustainable. And so it, I think it also it also inhibits you from making other experiments you wouldn't otherwise because you're so focused on putting the best out and you're always so focused on having the most elite shit. I mean, look at what Symbiotic did. With Larry OG and GDP, they created the Purple Punch. You don't fuck what you say. That's just not hype. That's beautiful. I've sifted it this year. That's crazy. You know what I mean? And it's like, so, you know, when you're in this mindset of like, man, we only have to put the most exclusive genetics, the best possible genetics on the market. I mean, I think it kind of takes away from the artistry because you're always trying to meet a certain expectation. You're not doing it um, just for the love of the game. You know, and I got to be real, you know, when... Um, when, when, when Gene and I kind of went on our separate ways, I think that was a point in, in, in my game personally when, um, when I don't think my head was all the way in it. And I think that was that probably that, that, that was probably one of those that year, I think based on just how long I've been doing shit, I got lucky with my selections. You know what I mean? I got lucky with the selections and I was able to, 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 to meet a certain mark and expectation for people. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's tough. It's tough trying to fucking always hold that line and do it. You know, it's like what Gene's doing right now with his lines is crazy. It's really cool. You know, he could do anything he fucking wants, you know, like that. And that's that's music to me. You know what I mean? So you could do anything you want. That's freedom. You know, that's, you could really make good music. So that's one of the reasons why we started a um, French Connection um, with my partner, Professor Q. Um, was it's, a, it's an outlet for us to be able to explore a lot of these more contemporary flavors and find new flavors that necessarily don't fit the aficionado paradigm of what people expect but you know are something that can still exceed all expectations you know what i mean like you know the 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 genetics you know symbiotic and sea junkie are working with they're not the most crazy exclusive genetics but they're incredibly good breeders and that's why the quality comes out of it they're able to to select and find things out of you know normally found strains you know and some rare strains and create something entirely fucking different and and and, and pivotal you know so they, that, that's the magic of it so you know going back to your thing with like you know uh yeah it was hella fucking hard i can't blame them you know what i mean i can't blame them yeah so tell us a little more about professor q i don't think people are as familiar with him as they are yourself man sorry in spanibus two years ago, right? Frenchie goes to Spanabis a week before me and um, to do about two classes. And I tell Frenchie before he goes to Spain, I'm like, I'm looking for the fucking skunk, Frenchie. <laughs> at the time, 
you know, before Duke Diamond released all the skunk crosses and stuff, you know, we were talking to James. You know, there was a bounty. You know, everybody had a bounty on skunk, right? So I was like, I'm going to find this, you know, because, you know, being a, that, that was that, that was the unique edge I had in aficionado. Wasn't that not that I was the best breeder? I was really able to find good genetics because I was able to find the good pounds. You know, I was awesome. Right. So we find a good pounds. Like, well, who's the farmer? Who does this? Right. So with Quentin, um, Frenchie puts the word out at his class to all the French cronies. He goes, I'm looking, we're looking for a skunk. <laughs> and then two weeks passes by. We're at Spanibus and these two shady ass looking fucking French gangsters come up to the table with a big iPad. And they're like, are you Leo? We're looking for Leo. And I tell my partners at the booth, I was like, it's about to get heavy, guys. <laughs> I don't know what they want. But it's going to be ugly. <laughs> and they had these mean mugs, mean mugging ass faces. And a look, dude looks at me. He's like, uh, we represent Quentin. He's like, we heard you looking for the skunk. And they pull out the iPad and they show me pictures of the, of the skunk. It looks like skunk. You know, they said they got it from High Pro. Um, and, you know, this, the French people have been holding it directly from High Pro who got it from uh, Flying Dutchman. So it's like a verified um, Flying Dutchman cut of the... Uh, uh, roadkill skunk and so they show me a sample of the hash and i'm like well where's this dude at and he's like well he doesn't want to come and spam it because he wants to meet you at like you know he wants to meet you at a private location so i'm like all right this is kind of weird so you know he tells us where to meet him we meet him at this bar and then uh we go we're at this bar and the waitress is super nice to this fucking guy like you know and he's the most humble guy he's like he's just some tall guy he looks kind of he looks like a gangster but he's like the most humble you know calm you know soft-spoken dude you know you'd ever fucking meet you know and so we were just talking and he was like yeah i have the skunk and you know i want to you know i want to offer it to you guys i want to be able to work with you guys and he was like come up to come up to the uh, countryside near the french border i want to show you my place and so, I, you know, after the cup, you know, after Spanibus, we went to his place, man, and he, he lived in the most beautiful part of, uh, of Spain, outside this town called Girona, which is where they filmed a lot of the episodes of Game of Thrones. And so he had this grow there that was so fucking clean, you could eat it off the floor. And he was so passionate about, you know, working with aficionado, he was like, I'll give all this up to have a chance to work with you. And, and he left it at that. And then for like the next week, he showed us the most beautiful places of Spain, and we just chilled. It wasn't any business, and I just had a really good feeling about it. I mean, this dude could look at any fucking plant and tell you the scientific name of it. It's like ridiculous. And he went to France's, uh, you know, their equivalent to MIT of horticulture, and it's uh, the University of Antibes, where he specialized in tissue culture, and um, and and breeding. And so it was like it was a it was kind of like meeting him was almost as fucking magical as meeting Frenchie. Like, that was made to happen. And then it just so happens that the guy that's kind of Quentin's OG from back in the day in Nice, France, was Frenchie's homie they were partying with in Goa. It's fucking crazy. Like, how does this happen? And so it's like, we didn't... I was like, dude, this is crazy. It's like, you know... And so Quentin had to come. You know, he came uh to california and, and you know we restructured the company and i was like bro you, you know you're my fucking dude you know i want to like let's let's take over the world together and so you know um now he's a full partner and aficionado and he's like you know he was definitely you know one of the best breeders best botanists 
horticulturist I've ever met, man. He's the, m- one of the most passionate people about plants you'd ever fucking meet. One of the most knowledgeable people about botany. It's unreal. He's like, how do you know so many scientific plant names and where they come from? Like, that's just unreal. He's not just a cannabis person. He's a fucking plant person. That's like the magic of Professor Q, you know. So him having the skunk was just like an entry into, you know, under, just get, scratching the iceberg of like this guy's potential. You know, like me and Frenchie looked at him, we were like, you know, talking. He was like, man, this guy's going to be fucking huge one day. He was going to be huge, you know. So, and he was also generally a good guy. So I was like, look, man, this is what I want to work with you, you know, but I don't want to make the mistakes I've made with other breeders where I didn't really play my cards right. So, you know, you're so raw, you're going to want to do your own thing one day. So let's work on aficionado and let's build a company around you too, your own brand, where you could, where you could fucking express yourself. And you could be your own person, you know, and, and it'd just be kind of like this record label shit. And he was down. And that's how it's been working, you know? So we both work on Aficionado and then, like, you know, French Connection is 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 our opportunity to, to, to do really exciting things in Europe with a lot of really badass French operators. Because when Frenchie and I went to Spain, it's universal. The best fucking growers in Europe are in the UK and, and France. I'm sorry to all my French people, uh, my Spanish people listening. And Alberto, I know you're in Barcelona right now. Yes, you're one of the best too. So, but but universally, man, the guys in France and and UK, man, they brought some fucking heat. We saw some crazy shit, like shit, the kind of talent where if you brought it to Cali, you could sell it for Cali prices. It was that fucking good. They give Cali people run for their money, and so you know that was definitely you know. Professor Q, that was kind of our whole thing, was like, man, we can make something bigger than aficionado. And I'm more comfortable on an international scale anyway. I grew up in Japan until so I was 20, started my career when I was in Germany. So the, the, going to Europe with, friend, with with Quentin and doing these new exciting things makes sense while you know we allow aficionado to be what it always has been, keep it based out of California, keep it pure. you know, Because we're only going to release three to five strains a year anyway for the rest of, rest of this company's life. Because... You know, we have a very specific focus for what we want to do, but the music we're going to make with Quentin, that's what I'm really excited about, too. Sounds exciting. Are there any other breeders you plan to do collaborations with? You know who I just hit up this morning? So I hit up Miss Jill. I hit up Miss Jill because I've been breeding a lot of strains. I've been breeding a lot of strains um, more geared towards the female palate. You know, my sister, who's Frenchie's apprentice, kind of really inspired me. Um, she kind of indirectly inspired me on that because she liked a certain flavor profile and her friends liked a certain flavor profile. And I was like, fuck, I wonder if I could breed for that. You know what I mean? So um, I forgot where I was getting to. What was your... Any other breeders you want to collab with? Yeah, yeah. So so my, my, my reason for hitting on Miss Jill was um, she's got some of the craziest flavors that females love like like the jelly bean the asian orange like these really incredible exotic crazy pronounced tones you don't find a lot of cultivars so she was someone i hit up this morning i I asked her if she was down and she was like yeah man let's wrap later so um another breeder i'm really looking forward um to doing some work you know we've kind of really collabed with a lot of breeders we we always kind of just did our own thing and, and made our own music but that's something that um, I definitely want to change because there's a lot of talent out there. There's a lot of breeders. You know, I want to put off the the notion that I'm too good to work with you because it's not. It, it was never like that. I was just always in my own world. 
I'm a I'm pretty reclusive by nature anyway, you know. So I was just in my own world working on my own thing because I tend to get distracted easy. Um, but you know, being able to work with different breeders, you know, who I want to work with. I, I you know, in house, in house is killing it right now. I I definitely like to work with him. You know, he was someone I like to work with. Um, Compound. These aren't guys I, I'm planning to work with. These are just guys I'm fans of because their work's good. Compound's work is really good. And, you know, if I could collab with, with, with a breeder one day, whoever's running Symbiotic, I think it's Budologist 420. But I could be wrong. But whoever's doing their breeding is doing some incredible work. <laughs> like I sifted through their, their purple punch F2s. And I just can't believe you got that expression out of GDP and OG. Like, what the fuck did you select for to get it to look like that? Like, that's, like what he did was what I always try to do. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, and 303 Seeds, some cat out of fucking Colorado, believe it or not. You know, it's like, it, California guys kind of hate on Colorado guys, but we just got to be real, man. There's some cats in Colorado that bring some flame. And 303 Seeds was one of them. They did the, jet, the G6 Jet Fuel, and that was... He was able to get an expression of sour that I've been trying to get for seven years. You know, he was he 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 nailed it on the G6 jet fuel. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you yeah. know, if I could work with someone, it'd be someone definitely like that too. You know? Yeah. So on the flip side, what are just some general genetics, whether it be land race or modern, that you kind of want to work into an aficionado strain? Well, like we're we've been surfing through the Lebanese for a while. And that's going to turn into a long-term project because, you know, you could cross things with things that sound exotic, but is the end product going to be exotic? You know, so we're really going to open up um, the Urkel. We're going to, you know, a lot of these really exciting flavors come from Urkel. So, you know, the, the, the essence of Royal Kush, you know, I always thought that, you know, Mandelbrot was trying to go towards the Sour D side of things with the Royal Kush until I finally grew his F1 clone the magnum opus and the original release of long valley directly next to a urkel and i was like holy fuck and it wasn't you know it was literally till last year i saw that observation i was like holy fuck that's what he was selecting for that's where all those crazy flavors in the original royal kush 7 coming from it wasn't coming from the the gani it wasn't coming from the sour i mean it was complimented by that but man those those crazy tense piercing fruit tones were coming from the urkel and so I'm definitely going back into the Urkel again, um, doing some exploring into there. And um, we made a crazy cross last year with one of the contemporary strains, Great Pie. We got one of the cuts of Great Pie from one of our buddies at Humboldt. Um, the cut came from L.A. And uh, we crossed it with the, uh, the Rosé Especial. And we just were like, we'll see what's going to happen. And so we didn't really pop the seeds this year. We had... Uh, Royal Key, uh, Josh from Royal Key Organics ran the seed, and he found some crazy shit. He ended up giving us two males back. We flowered the males out, and they were some of the frostiest males we've ever seen. So that's something we're, we're going to explore that that cultivar a lot more next year and see what we could select, see if it meets certain expectations. And um, you know, I'm really excited about working the original Diesel. I met Strawberry Jerry from. Um, God damn, I can't remember his fucking his company name. He released Stra Strawberry Jerry. He's a super talented beer from the East Coast, and he's at, he's got a back cross of the original Diesel Mutter. Not Sour Diesel. Original Diesel. The mom that made Sour Diesel. 
so he's got a back cross of that and that's definitely something I'm 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 really you know excited to work in you know I've kind of been um you know collecting pollen and you know storing a few things because uh, uh, Capulator gave us uh, he, he gifted Leo for, uh, from blockchain to give to me uh, a pack of this uh, orange apricot times Mac crossed our chem dog express reserve so uh, Leo ended up keeping the two females out of that and we ran all the males in our indoor and the males are fucking crazy and so um, we put it we put the mail on on one of my white cashmere's to see what happened, but like we're just gonna test that out. You know, I have no intention of releasing that. I make anywhere from like 30 strains a year on average. You know, but we only release like five to six. So it's like part of part of me, you know, breeding is just seeing what things have in them. You know what I mean? And how do they cross? You know how they look? You know, not everything that I'm gonna cross, I'm gonna I'm gonna produce or or sell. You know, a lot of this is for observation. Just like you know, you're only gonna be a good breeder as as, as many strains as you grow and you fuck with too. So that's why I also see the 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 virtue in in working with other breeders and collaborating with other breeders, getting an extra set of eyes, um, getting that extra perspective on what a certain direction could take. You know what I mean? Because I'll be I'll be honest. You know, like if I don't ha- if I don't have Quentin. You know, here most of the time in Frenchie, I'd probably be full of shit, you know, because you could believe your own shit you tell yourself in your head. But if you don't have another informed breeder going, no, I don't think that's the right direction. I think we should go this way. And you can look that objectively and go, yeah, you're right, bro. You know, that's magic, you know. So, you know, the, you know, these breeders that I'm talking about that I want to work with, you know, and, and their strains, it's because I'm seeing shit in their work that they're making selections. They're coming with flavors that nobody else is making, you know. That's magic. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, on the topic of creation and whatnot, seed testing is always a topic of interest to me. In the past, we used to see people use testers, but we've steered away from that, and a lot of people do in-house testing. Where do you guys sit? We've never done testers, ever. We've always, it's always been our policy to vigorously test in-house. Um, when, you're, when you're outsourcing testing, it's kind of like the risk of licensing, you're you're expecting a certain a certain standard to be met in your absence and that's always a risk right especially with breeders breeders need breeders always need to have things a certain fucking way and you know and we're the same way too you know it's like i vigorously test you know i have a I, we have a vigorous testing you know program you know where like the whole time that we test so when we test this is like a you know how we test right so like we'll make a strain and then we'll test it its first year, outdoors, right? We'll test it outdoors, and we get, we, you know, we get a full six to eight months, you know, you know, living with the strain, seeing how it works. And also, we take cuts, cuts during when it's growing. We take cuts of the females, we take cuts of the males, right? One for preservation, and two for fucking stress testing. You got to see what's in, what's in these strains, because you know, when we grow, I'm basically giving the seeds and their environment, the best possible environment. You know, it's like you, it's how you want to treat, you know, your pregnant wife, right? You want to give her just nothing but love and a comfortable environment and just no stress. So that baby comes out its best possible self. Right. And so with, so we need that to happen in the garden where, where things are producing and where we're getting a feel for, you know, cultivating these things under ideal conditions. But you also have to test things under unideal conditions, you got to kind of be uh, a fucking asshole 
and 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 subject your the girls that you love to you know a certain degree of pain and especially the boys we call we you know the, the champagne room the reason why we call our mail room the champagne room is because it's the final place you go after you get your ass beat in fight club like that's initial male selection for us it goes through fight club and that's we have to see what the fuck this strain can deal with and that's really where a lot of your testing is going to come from you know um you know testing as far as like germination that's something you should always do in house test the fuck a germ on your seeds, test the progeny, see if they grow out well, you know, but, you know, I think there's also a lot of value in having other talented growers test your shit too. I just think you have to be really, um, you have to be really, uh, uh, fucking, you have to be really decisive on, on who you choose to work with. You has to be a lot of trust and there has to be, you know, a set of rules, you know, in an agreement that, that has to be honored between the breeder and the guy that's testing it, you know, because a lot of the reason people don't like testers is because, you know, things can end up getting stolen. You don't know certain people's security, you know. Um, so, you know, as a breeder, you just kind of want to control everything, you know, best possible. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, Aficionado as a brand has a lot of kind of mystery and kind of mystique around it, in my opinion. With that being said, what are the types of things you get up to on an average basis? Like, are you just locked away breeding most of the time? Yeah. Short answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, you know, um, so basically there's like my day. I'm up at five or s- five to six every day. I'm a weed monk. <laughs> I get up at five or six every day. I, I work out and, and I do weed uh, all the way until I sleep. And, you know, I think, you know, you need that kind of intense focus to be good at anything you know and it's like you know i've really butted heads with this guy in the past and people know that we kind of don't like each other publicly but you know brandon from third gen a lot of you can love him or hate him there's one thing that i learned from him was was uh, i've never seen somebody work harder in the industry than that motherfucker and so seeing you know and, and a lot of people have you know you could say whatever you can but he he earned he earned everything he's fucking earned through hard fucking work you know the guy's talented but hard work beats talent every time you know what i mean he's any he, any he, he, i've never seen someone work that intense so you know i've always you know looked at brandon as someone i had to kind of keep up with you know and it was kind of using you know using a rival to your advantage where you could find inspiration from someone you don't get along with you could start, you could kind of see the strengths they have so it's like you know seeing guys at the top of their game seeing how many fucking hours they put into their business. Same with Kevin Jodry. That motherfucker's a workaholic. He's a workhorse. You know, the dude never stops working. And, you know, that that inspires me. You know, same thing. And, and I follow the hip-hop industry. You know, most some of your most successful artists don't fucking sleep. I mean, they sleep, but they're, they're, they work. And it takes that level of focus and attention to detail to be successful at it. And so it's like I've gotten through times in my life where I've, I've deep my, where, where my focus and my cognition is deviated from where it should be. But in, but knowing that if I really want to be in this industry, make something, I got to be super fucking disciplined. You know what I mean? Like this isn't just because I own, you know, we have our own business doesn't mean that we could fuck off. It's like, you have to be incredibly fucking disciplined because no matter how hard you're working, I really feel that there's other people out there that are more hungry that are fucking working harder than you to take away what you have or to fucking, you know, get better that, at you in the game. And that's just going to fucking happen. So it's like my regular day, it's like, you know, I have to manage the indoor, the outdoor, um, check on emails, check on sales. Like we have a really small, tight, you know, tight family, really small, tight network. 
you know, and we really like to, we operate like we hustle. We don't like to really share about, share a lot about what we do. We just like to show people the end product. We feel that's part of the magic. You know, when, when you go to a magic show and someone shows you how the magic trick is done, it, it kind of loses its, its, its mystique. It kind of loses, it loses the magic. And so we figured if we just like really focus on the fucking craft and just whenever people see us, we're, we're just communicating some fire and that's, that, that's our goal, you know? And so it just takes a certain lifestyle. Um, definitely a lot of sacrifice. You know, I definitely sacrificed partying a lot. You know, I was partying a lot when I first started aficionado, but you know, now, you know, just I've learned by being in the game that if you want to be relevant, you got to work harder than the guy that's working harder than you to get in the game right now. So that's what keeps me hungry. You know, it's like my, my normal day is busy as fuck. I'm usually up at five or six, done at 11, go to bed at 12, do it all over again. Sometimes go to bed at two. Yeah. Wow. Workaholic by the sounds of it. <laughs> yeah. A little bit, you know, it's, but it's like, um, you know, everybody thinks it's a cool idea to start their own company until you're actually doing it. And then you have to see what goes into it. And then, you know, I have a lot of people I, I aspire to kind of, you know, get to the level. And so I just kind of emulate their, their work habits and their intensity when they approach their craft. Like, you know, certain producers I know that I really look up to and uh, certain businessmen that I, I know I really look up to that they have these, these work ethics that, man, if I want to get to that level, I have to fucking work that hard or harder. Yeah, totally. So I guess shout out to Brendan from Third Gen, One Love. Yeah, yeah, One Love. You know, like we, we've, you know, we've, you know, we've had people publicly know we don't get along. But my voice is the thing is like, just because I don't like you doesn't mean I can't respect you. You know what I mean? And just you know, like there's always, you know, everyone's got something about their hustle and their intensity that if you just put us put away your fucking ego, man, you can see you can really see the value these motherfuckers bring to the game. You know, aside from all the ego shit on IG, it's like no one worked harder than that motherfucker. That dude worked hard as fuck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And same thing with Gene. You know, no one makes, no one breeds and observes on a level that Gene does. You know what I mean? When it comes to breeding. So it's like, you know, being in proximity, those guys showed me a standard of, 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 of where we should operate. You know what I mean? And then not abiding by those and making my mistakes and fuck ups further reinforces how we should emulate how certain guys like that operate that intensity that dedication you know what i mean so yeah okay it's definitely like a spiritual journey <laughs> so a little bit unrelated i want to know what's your prediction on the next big thing to hit the industry or the next big wave whatever you want to call it and how do you plan to ride it i don't know that's a good question that's a good question. I think like the big thing in what context and the big thing in like the flower market, the genetics market, you know, it's, you know, next big strain, next big phenomenon. I mean, I really think the next big thing happened with Big Al, bro. I think that, you know, it's, is, 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 it, is it set in stone? We, we can't tell yet. But is it happening right now? Is the opportunity here right now? Fuck yeah. That's what, that's what real people in the industry needed so hard was, was to be able to participate at that level and separate themselves from the fucking corporate booth squad. You know, so like, to me, that's like, you know, some people can say that's not a big phenomenon and motherfuckers are price gouging. Look, that, that customer demographic exists. They're underserved. It's the reason why 
Audemars, Paget, Ferrari, and Rolex are in business as customers of this demographic. And so it's like they need to be served. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and just because you serve them at that at that price point doesn't mean you can offer things at an other price point too. You know, it's not binary. You know, mm-hmm. cannabis isn't binary. It's not just it's not black or white. You know, so you know, I think that's like the the biggest thing that's happening to the culture right now that people really aren't appreciating is that we have this new opportunity to really be like wine, to really be like craft spirits, to really be like high end Cuban cigars. You know, so why resist this opportunity when it's going to be what's going to save us later down the line? Yeah, totally. So one of the questions we received from a few different fans over the period of this show is that basically they're always interested in knowing how is it you go about sourcing all of the rare genetics? I know before you mentioned that it was through, you know, bags and whatnot, but obviously some of the stuff you have access to, which is really old, doesn't come from a bag. Is it like a real... Kind oh, it of- wasn't from bags. It was like when it came, like when I said in that context, yep. you know, when the person would bring the packs over, I'd be like, where's the farmer at? I want to meet the farmer. Ah, there you go. And if they, and if they wanted to introduce me to the farmer, I'd give them some fucking fire-ass seeds or a fire-ass clone. I was like, dude, introduce me to the farmer, bro. He's going to want this clone. Yeah, okay. So just yeah. in general, how do you go about procuring these more rare and obscure strains? Man, all over, you know. Sometimes, you know, some people will be talking to Frenchie. You know, I've met, um, you know, really, it happen- it's all, always different. You know, back in the day, um, before before everything went legal, it was really through when I was still, you know, when I was still really active you know, uh, doing other things is when I was really collecting the strains, meeting farmers, you know, driving thousands of miles, putting thousands of miles on my fucking vehicle every week just to meet farmers, um, making deals happen so I could find genetics. But now, now it's a lot different. Now it's a lot, now it's the culture changed, the, the landscape changed. So we're getting our genetics from, you know, from, you know, just random people now, like not random people, but like people that we meet through our network that we never would have thought would brought this. You know, we have to verify these genetics and grow them out and see if it's really what they say it's going to be. But a lot of the times, you know, the hardest part about obtaining genetics is getting it from a rare source that's willing to share it. The game's changed now where a lot of people really realize the value in their genetics. So it's getting harder for a lot of breeders to to obtain, you know, new gear unless you're collabing with people or, or, you're, or you're straight up buying seeds. And I've never been, you know... Uh, a, I've never been a huge like uh, seed, seed collector in the sense where I, I collect other companies' packs. It was like, I want the shit that comes in a Ziploc bag, you know, that came from fucking Thailand, you know, or the stuff that we got from Lebanon. Like, the seeds we got from Lebanon was, uh, we could congratulate Professor Q, you know what I mean? And it was really hard to get those. They were from, they were late 70s stock that was just opened up a couple years ago and then um, open pollinated. And so, and that came directly from, from, from Lebanon. Um, uh, and then we got that, from, came from Lebanon, and then it ended up uh, landing in Spain where we were sifting it. And so, um, I don't know how it fucking got to Spain, but Quentin called me one day and he was like, dude, I got the Lebanese. <laughs> and we were so happy. <laughs> we were fucking so happy. Hell yeah. But, you know, finding the strain is, is the hardest part. It's, it's like when you look at a producer, right? When I was mentioning earlier that you know, producer's job is, you know, um, to create, shape, and shift the future of music, you know. And I have to quote Funk, Funk Master Flex was the one who, who says that, that producers create, shape, and shift the, the future of music. But what also, what these producers and DJs do is they do some, they have this culture of digging, where they, where they, where they go through and they dig through records, 
so they could find new sounds. And where you, uh, where you obtain these new records and these new tracks and how you obtain them is always a fucking secret to DJs. You know, a lot of people, like, back in the day, you know, was like, you know, motherfuckers always ask other producer DJs, like, hey, where are you getting these tracks or where are you getting these samples from? That's, that's, part of their, that's part of their magic and how they acquired seeds, you know? Like, I've always just had a really... You know, that was kind of one of the weird things I fell into. I was just... I, I, I ended up getting really lucky at finding good genetics because, because of business pipelines. And so I just keep following those pipelines. I just keep, you know, I keep, you know, networking with people and I share a lot of genetics too. So it's like, it's not like I'm just like, look, going out, looking for shit. I'm like, you know, I have a lot of things on my vault that I'm like, Hey, you know, what are you looking for? Is there anything you want? And then, you know, I'll make that happen, you know, or, or to the best of my ability. <laughs> it's usually the, the, the best, that the best way we can get strains. Yeah. For real. Yeah. So you trade them, you know? Do you feel like breeding with heirloom or land race strains is able to help you r- remove what we would maybe refer to as the ceiling or that inability to continue to get more and more high, which doesn't seem to be occurring in like land race and heirloom varieties? I don't know, man. It's, a, it's really difficult breeding land race and heirloom varieties. It sounds exotic until you're actually doing it. <laughs> you know, and then you have to go out and you have to make the crosses and test it. You know, with a lot of these contemporary strains, you could tell from the mother stock and what you select that you're going to have a good probability of getting something that's going to meet a certain level of expectation. But when you're working with land race, your selection has to be fucking incredibly on point. There's a lot of really garbage land race, but there's a lot of really good stuff, but it's really difficult to access. And um, so, you know, for me, a lot of these really difficult ones to access that I've been searching for years was, you know, the, 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 the broadleaf Burmese, old school Burmese, the one that looks like OG. You know, I smoked it. I smoked the Burmese. My first trip when I went to, when I, was, I grew up in Japan until I was 20. And the first time I went to Thailand, I was like 18. And uh, my buddies came out and was like, hey, we, we were in the smoke of weed at the time because weed is expensive as fuck in Japan. It was 70 bucks a gram. And so when we went to Thailand, you know, it was just like smoke heaven. And I remember having a Burmese that was rock fucking hard. And it was one of the craziest highs I've ever had. So I've been kind of chasing one of those strains. And it was really frosty. It was like exceedingly frosty. You know, some of the weed we were getting in Japan, a lot of it was coming from Mexico if it was coming in nug form or it was getting smuggled in from, from Cali, from, from on the Navy ships with the sailors, and then they'd sell it to kids. And, um, but when, I, when we went to Thailand, we were, that was the first time I got to see like really good wheat. I got really lucky. It wasn't, it wasn't hydraulically pressed or anything. And so it was something like that. That was the standard what I wanted to chase. You know, same thing with like an Afghani, like a real Afghani, or like, a, like an incredible Pakistani that has not just frost, but a nose. You know, so you see a lot of these old hash varieties, like they'll be crazy frosty, but they won't really have like a definitive nose, something that you could breed with and that you're really certain that you're going to get, you know, a new and exciting flavor from, you know, so it's like, it's really, I've learned through trial and error that when you're breeding land races, it's more of a long-term project and a lot of it's going to be more research and development and recording your observations because it's going to take some time to get that land race cross to express itself in a manner that's going to meet the expectations of what strains are doing these days, you know, with shit that fucking, you know, symbiotic and sea junkies releasing these crazy frosty profiles. Like that's the new standard. 
So it's like if you want to breed with land race strains that historically don't have these exaggerated frost profiles, it's going to be more of a lot, you know, it's, it's, it, you, you, you better have a fucking good direction you're going to go if you want to release that. Yeah. So I mean, that, that's at least my two cents, you know, and there's people that work a lot of land races that have really good work, you know, there's AK Bean Brains um, in the Nature Farm on IG. These guys um, are crowing some crazy fucking land races, really rare shit, and that's cool. I think those guys might end up being some of the next big guys in the game. I've been seeing some crazy phenotypes and collection coming out of their fucking feeds that I'm just like, how the fuck did you get that? You know what I mean? But it's like, that's the magic. You know what I mean? How did you get that? The fact is they got that and it's exotic and they're going to be able to flex crosses their land races that are going to hopefully prove themselves to be just as good, if not better than a lot of these contemporary poly hybrids we're seeing on the market. Of course. So something I realize I haven't asked you, what type of cannabis is your personal favorite? Are you into stuff that's kind of like going to more bro. work out? Oh, hey, stimulate. Stuff I don't sell. I mean, I love gas. Like, you know, really my, my, my first love is gas. I have a, a really, I, I've, I, I just, I, I get gas plants. And I get along with them really well um, as far as growing and smoking them. But man, my, my love is haze, man. I love that crazy, you know, it looks like someone just plucked your third eye out and just threw it in the outer space. Like, that's what I want. Like, the first time I smoked the C5 haze in Spain was a crazy experience. It was like a 16-week flower. It didn't look, it looked airy as fuck. It was pretty frosty. It didn't really have a crazy unique nose that I can remember right now and go, oh, it's this flavor. I just remember the the high was so intense. I don't remember the flavor, bro. <laughs> and I was sitting in this house, and and great gardener says to smoke it. It's just all the way up. Like, what do you mean? It's just straight up. What the fuck you mean? Smoke it straight up. All right. So I smoke it, and literally, it feels like someone grabs the side of your head and lifts you straight the fuck up. I haven't had such a visceral sativa high like that since I was a little kid in Thailand. And so it's like my favorite weeds are always going to be those old school sativas that kind of get hated on because they take a long time to flower out. Because to me, it's about the high. Like, you know, like, yeah, everyone says, oh, this is medicine. Yeah, it is fucking medicine. I got PTSD. I, I use it medicinally. But really, like my, my form of medicine is getting to this certain high so I could I could interface life at a, at a different frequency. You know what I mean? And so to me, like, you know, the haze high did that. And I'll be real too. With the other strain, I love smoking. I fucking love because the high just makes sense to me. Is Skittles? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Some people either hate that shit or they love it. So it, it brought me a similar happy, heady high that I get when I smoke a lot of the, you know, the old school and the contemporary hazes you find in, in Europe nowadays. You know, so um, I just I, I don't like being really stoned and sleepy because I'm busy as fuck all day. So I like something that's going to you know, really pick me up and uh, get me going, you know, almost like a, like a proper sour diesel, you know, where you could, you're noticeably high, but you're, you're not impaired to the point where it's going to, it's going to inhibit, you know, productivity. Yeah. So on that note of gassy, we've mentioned it earlier, the chem special reserve. It's one of the popular ones I hear about people from people all the time from you guys. Do you plan to ever bring it back and work with it? And broadly speaking, will you ever rework any projects again? Yeah, 
we're in the middle of reworking the white cashmere. <laughs> so, um, those packs. Yeah, those. Oh no, it was yeah those packs coupled with the last like thirty to fifty seeds we had. We went for broke. Like we never pop everything, but we popped everything this year. <laughs> so we we got we got males in clone form. We saved all the females. We got tons of pollen stocked up. But um, it depends on on how good the strain is. You know, you know, we would really be doing a lot of our clients a disservice if we were to release this to do a re-release of the strain or, or to rework it. It kind of takes from away from the allure and the prestige of why they bought it in the first fucking place, um, unless. It was one of those strains where, because a lot of the times in the first three years, th these strains didn't get saved. They were literally grown as big-ass outdoor plants, and the packs were moved back east. Now, I mean, that's just was the culture in Humboldt and, and Mendo at the time, you know? So, um, you know, under certain circumstances like that, like the white cashmere was one of those where a lot of people really didn't save a cut. It kind of disappeared. And if we have enough evidence that it's disappeared, we'll, we'll fucking we'll do a re-release. You know what I mean? We'll do an encore release, but we've never purposely opened up a strain and then reworked it and released it. Probably the only one we've done that with was like, you know, the Royal Lions, because every generation was different from like when we when I got it as the Royal Crush 7 then we brought it in the 8 and 9. Every generation was fucking different. Like now we have it at 12, you know, we have it as like Magnum 12. And so like. And it's completely different. Every generation is just like, you know, there's something unique in everything. So when we go back and we open things up, it's if only if we could find an entirely new direction, then it becomes a new thing. Yeah. So that's actually a question we got asked a lot about as well. What was your journey with Mandelbrot's Royal and how did it go from being, you know, the, the Royal seven, sorry, six to the Long Valley to kind of where it is now? So, um, I met Mandelbrot through Kevin in, in Shiloh, uh, at the Emerald Cup of 2013. We won in 2012 and then I got fourth place with the Royal. And I remember on the breed, on the card, it said, who's the breeder or who bred it? I think there was this thing I was like, I remember writing, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I wanted to know. And because I, I always heard about him, I didn't know his name was Mandelbrot. I always just heard about the guy that bred the truth, the guy that bred the uh, the, the Royal Kush, because these are the stain. These are the strains that were going back east, and Dave Chappelle and Common and Most Def were smoking on. You know the the the, the, tr the story on the street. You know when I heard it from Mandelbrot was that's how the strain name got its truth. Got the name the truth is you know Chappelle was smoking some weed with you know this is this is you know this is you know come this came from you know sitting in Manabrot's car is like you know Dave Chappelle was smoking some weed with fucking most deaf and and Talib quality most deaf in um in common and I guess they called it it they it was sold to them as like Maui super dog and someone got so high I forgot who it was and he's like nah nigga that's just called the truth the truth and so that was like this whole story and you know that was the you know and that was the story uh, you know motherfuckers were also talking about when the truth seeds were in mendo the truth seeds were the first fucking seeds i ever heard that were 80 dollars a seed and like they went for 80 dollars a pack but my our partner sean at the time who's no longer with us bless your soul you know he passed away from cancer he was one of the guys that came up to mendo with me my first years um he came into the fucking house after going to uh, 
a club in, in San Francisco. And he was like, you want to fucking believe this? Cause he was a seed collector too. That was our thing. We collect clones. We'd collect seeds. We'd go to any club. We could find clones and seeds and just and go shopping. And, um, he came back with these fucking truth seeds. He was like, and he, and he didn't pop them. He was like, bro, I paid 80 bucks a seed for these. I was like, bro, how many seeds are in there? He's like, 10. He's like, it's, it's like some of the best flour you've ever smoked. And he had some samples of flour. It was fucking crazy. And that was probably like 2010 when, when I saw those seeds. And then fast forward to like 2013 when I won the cup, I didn't know who had bred the Royal Coast. So um, I didn't claim that I bred it. So Mandelbrot, Shiloh comes up to the booth. Kevin's also at the booth too. And then um, Shiloh's with this fucking big dude. And he was like, hey, this is Mandelbrot. He bred the Royal Kush. And and I was like, holy fuck. Because when I went to go find the seeds of the Royal Kush, they were, they were at this, um, they were at loving, loving It at a dispensary in Mendocino. And it was the only dispensary in the entire state of California that had fucking Emerald Mountain seeds. And they were all the original seeds. They were all the original release seeds. I remember buying tons of packs. And we selected the, the winning Royal Sour out of that. That's how the Royal Sour name came about. It was a pheno from the Royal Coast 7 packs that was hella sour D dominant. It was long, long, lanky spaghetti noodle stems. And anybody that grows Royal knows it's like a fucking pine tree. It's short, stout, fat. You know, it grows like a Christmas tree. But this one was like a sour. And so that was the one we entered. And I remember the seeds were old and they had really bad germ rates on them. And then after I met uh, Mandelbrot, he was like, yeah, dude, those are the original, you know, seeds, those original Royal Coast 7 seeds I made. And I was like, holy fuck. And so I remember after that, you know, we became, you know, he, we became friends and, you know, he sold me several hundred seeds of, you know, the truth, the original truth, which I, you know, some of them I still have and the, the Royals. And, and so my goal was like, I was like, look, man, I'm making this Royal and it's, 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 I want to acclimatize it to the Mendo environment, you know, because what we were doing is, you know, the Royal Kush was really unique was you'd get a fucking nice, you know, huge fuck, a crazy frosty plant that had gas, but no powdery, no mold, you know, and Leightonville's a really unique environment as far as Mendocino is concerned. It's not as dry as places like, like Boonville. It's not as dry as places in, you know, uh, East Willits, like at Hearst, you know, Leightonville definitely has a lot more coastal influence, um, a little more fog. So the whole goal of doing the Long Valley Royal Kush was to select a Royal Kush from seed that was relatively consistent. If anybody remembers popping the original Royal Kush seven seeds from Brat, every single pheno was, was crazy different. Like, not in a bad way. Every pheno was fucking fire. But, you know, some would be long, some would be short, some would be purple, some would have gas, some wouldn't have gas. And so we wanted to get a strain that I selected the Sour D dominant male and the Sour D dominant female. Um, so because we felt that the Sour D tendency, Sour D did really well in Leightonville. It, it was uh, old faithful. You could grow a ton of it. It wouldn't have a lot of powdery, wouldn't have a lot of botrytis, and you could get it to market. So, you know, just from that observation, I wanted to select, you know, more of these smaller leaves, noodley branches. Let's trace that. We're definitive of that. And, you know, and then when I started working his lines more, that when, when Mandelbrot sold me um, those original seeds, that was 
you know, that was where we really made the fucking Royal Chris and, and he helped me select and, you know, um, you know, I was giving him plants up, up until, you know, when he passed away, 2015, you know, it was, it was fucked up. You know, I gave him, actually gave him the last of my, my plants in my greenhouse because he had a, he had a problem on his farms, a bunch of his plants died. And I remember, you know, I was still with Lady L at the time and Mandelbrot comes with his truck and we just we gave him like a few hundred of our plants that we had left. And it was all his genetics too. So I was like happy to give them to him. I was like, bro, you like, you know, you helped me, you know create these and I mean not create these but you helped me like fucking grow these out and select these find you know what was fire you know it's like the best thing I could at least do is give you these you know so what was cool about Mandelbrot was he oper he vibrated at such a high fucking level right like he got me my first account at uh Ag Unlimited and like I'm still on his account right? it's like a Mac I'm still on his account it's before I even knew his real name, I'd come in, I'm like, yo, Mandelbrot here sent me. It's like, who do you mean, Mac? And I was kind of like, yeah, whatever, that guy, big guy, you know, the guy I came in with. And so he sent my first, um, like, real ag account up at an at a ag wholesaler. And at the time, I was super into um, soil science. I was super into compost. Um, I have just previously worked with Alan Atkinson from Gokashi, who was doing Probiotic Farmers Alliance. And so that was something that we really connected on. Mandelbrot was doing emerald mountain organics he was formulating soil for people he was actually mixing his own nutrients he was buying he was getting biolink nutrients and he was mixing them and having ag unlimited do custom mixes for him and then he would find his own inputs around the so like really my, my regimen i gave to my plants it's like i won the cup through the regimen i built with you know that i learned from mike and that I helped, you know, it's like, cause the cup soil recipe was jointly created by, um, by, by lady L and I, you know, uh, her cousin, crazy Larry had this crazy fire soil mix. We used that. And then I was, you know, I did all the, the top end fertilization and, and, and the gene selection. But when it came to fertilizing, man, Mandelbrot had an incredible talent for that. And that's where we really bonded on, you know what I mean? And I remember we would be at area 101 with Emerald cup, Tim. And at the time, there was man. I was there. Man, Lebrat was there. I think Casey O'Neill might have been there. Um, but this guy named this PhD plant pathologist named Chuck Schiller, who invented the tw the, the micronized twelve zero zero, the twelve zero zero soybean powder that a lot of people are using as a foliar. That's fucking crazy. He invented that, and you know he was kind of like him and in Han, a lot of us growers, but he was genuinely blown the fuck away by Mandelbrot's knowledge of soil sciences and, and general botany and horticulture. He was blown the fuck away that this guy's knowledge was. So, um, you know, and I think that was probably like a year before, you know, he passed away was, was when, you know, they called us in, you know, the whole, the whole thing, it was, it was, it was Chuck Schiller was working for Grower Secret at the time and Grower Secret was like, well, we're trying to formulate the, the best, you know, bloom formula possible. You know, and so like, you know, me and Mandelbrot, we were really geeking out on that because we had a beef with BioLink's, you know, phosphorus, you know, because their phosphorus was great. They had this great phosphorus nutrient, but it was a colloidal phosphate suspension. So basically it was just fucking water and soft rock phosphate, right? So there was, you know, and so what we wanted was we wanted something kind of like what uh, BioCanna had, but they had an exclusive license on it, was like this colloidal phosphate-based phosphorus bloom formula, but that didn't have any sediment that you could run through a drip line. 
you know, because Mandelbrot was really big on, all right, I want to breed these genetics, but I also want to create the soil and the nutrient, you know, nutrient regimen for it. But I also want it to be scalable and I want it to be universal so anybody can use it. And so it's like, really working with Mandelbrot goes way past the genetics. The dude taught me so much about fucking general, you know, general nutrients. I still have a, a, a file box full of like our, the old catalogs from uh, Emerald Mountain Organics of what, what, what the soil mixes Mandelbrot would make for people and the different um, regimens. Like he had a 32 part, no, 18 part liquid, uh, uh, organic liquid regimen. And it wasn't for feeding the plant, it was for feeding the soil. Like he was on some next level shit. Mandelbrot was the first person using a calcium, magnesium, uh, using a cow mag that was completely organic. It was all from mined car, uh, magnesium carbonate and calcium carbonate. And this company um, that was working with spinach farmers back in the late 90s, they found out that they could take this calcium carbonate and this magnesium carbonate and they could put it in a vat of, of what's called dextrolactic acid um dextrolactic acid and it's a it's 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 a different salt it's a different sugar based um uh, or sugar i think i'm saying the right thing sugar based lactic acid but what it does is it it attaches a sugar molecule to the calcium and the magnesium components in the magnesium calcium carbonate and allows it to just hang out in the soil as as an amino acid based calcium magnesium you know, so what was crazy about this is like whenever you generally feed cow mag to a plant, it's chelated with 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 um, uh, EDTA, which is a chemical salt chelating agent, and it gets directly absorbed by the roots. But what Mandelbrot was doing, he was like, "Fuck, how do I how do I increase the mobile availability of calcium and magnesium?" Like, so well, we know that magnesium is mobile in soil, but calcium isn't. But with the, through but but through doing his fucking homework, he was the first person to use cow mag DL on crops on, on like cannabis crops like this and that was like you know like w when when he taught me these things and i switched to using his inputs man my fucking soil went through the roof i remember the first time dirty business soil came online and i was actually able to see what my cation exchange capacity is and what people understand they're listening to what a cation exchange capacity is it's basically a, a number that indicates um the rate of how uh, how available nutrients are in your soil and the breakdown of nutrients in your soil so um, I was getting way higher numbers, like with the soil that was using Mandelbrot's uh, inputs versus the soils that weren't, you know, so it's like, it goes way more than genetics. How I grow completely changed because of him. Yeah, for real as well. There's a lot to take in. I'm trying to, yeah, think, I'm it, trying to think about what A lot of people the... don't know the story, you know, it was a... it was a really, it was something that, it was always, it was street business back in the day, you know. So it was that was something that you know, no matter what, even though that there was drama between Mandelbrot's brother and I back in the day, it was something that, you know, it wasn't my business to share. Like it wasn't it wasn't me. Like when people were were doubting that when I worked with Mandelbrot, it wasn't up for me to reinforce that. Like I knew what the fuck I did with Mandelbrot, and the right people knew what I did with Mandelbrot. You know what I mean? I was sitting with him in, in Area 101, helping formulate fucking Bloom nutrients with Chuck Schiller from Grower Secrets. Chuck Schiller remembers that shit, and so it's like. It's a. It was like a. It was a. It was a bittersweet, you know, because I had some drama with with his family back, you know, like two years ago, and and it was a really hard thing to deal with, you know, because I had never met his family. We had a. We had a strictly. It was old school relationship. You know what I'm saying? It was. We were based on on the hustle. It's like uh, you know, people that usually are fucking doing deals together. You're not going to family barbecues together. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, 
unless you guys grew up together. You know, and I'm a transplant, you know what I mean? So I really didn't get to meet most of Man Rod's family until I feel like he really passed away. Yeah, that's unfortunate to hear. Yeah, he was like, but he was probably, you know, he's I, the whole point of working his lines, especially after he passed away, was, was so his memory wouldn't die. Yeah. It was that a lot of people, you know, and me and Mandelbrot would talk about this thing about the great breeders that would breed something and their shit got raided by the cops or they got killed, you know, and no one's ever going to hear that story. And, 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 and that shit's and, and those genetics are, are, are forever going to be extinct, you know? So it was about, you know, I felt that this guy was like the father of the contemporary, you know, of, of what he made breeding fuel possible for a larger, for a larger audience that didn't have access to things like chem dog or, or OG back cross seeds, you know, to get these kind of crazy fuel profiles, you know? So I did, I, you know, it was like, I'd be damned if, 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 if motherfuckers forgot about him, you know what I mean? But now his memory lives on through, you know, numerous farms and Ben still can, you know, Ben still continuing, you know, his brother's work. And so like, that's the beautiful thing, you know what I mean? So, yeah, for sure. So, what type of legacy do you want to leave on the industry from aficionado? I, I just want—I want to build something. I want to build a company that stand the test of time. You know, and I think it's about, you know, finding finding different talents that could help you take this vision and take it somewhere. You know what I mean? So. Like you look at, like I, I studied a lot of fashion companies. I, I grew up in, I grew up in, you know, Yokohama, and you know, um, I studied fashion when I was in college in Japan before I before I moved back to the states. And so I've always um, been fascinated by how a lot of these luxury companies were built, a lot of how these fashion companies were built. So you look at, you know, long after Christian Dior passed away, he had this guy named John Galliano, you know, being his creative designer. You know, and so you could have like, you know, after. If, if the brand's good enough and it could live, it could, it could continue to live on, it's still going to need some sort of creative director to carry that legacy. I don't want to just sell aficionado. And I want to do this for the rest of my life. I want, I want, I want my grandkids to, to be able to, to sit at the board of aficionado's table and work with whoever they choose to be the creative director or whoever's good enough to breed. You know what I mean? So it's like with, you know, Yves Saint Laurent, that's where I asked how Tom Ford was the creative director of Yves Saint Laurent and Gucci. And all these companies were started by a guy named fucking Yves Saint Laurent and a guy whose last name was Gucci. And so like my, my, my vision was like, man, if we, if I could really, if there's a possibility we could build something that stand the test of time that will still be here after we die, what, what's needed to make that happen? You know, and so I guess we're exploring that right now. And I know Frenchie's exploring that right now. You know, because Frenchie's building is is a brand that that we want to to stand the test of time too. You know, Jack Daniels isn't going to make the whiskey forever, but he's going to continue to stand the test of time. And so, it's really early in the industry, and it's going to only time in the market and consistency is going to decide who reaches that level first. You know, because I don't think anyone's reached that level yet, but I think it's worth trying. Yeah, I totally agree. So, I mean, if we're talking means to an end there, what are you going to release next? What can people look forward to next? And tell us what you're going to have at Emerald. So, we're so uh, Emerald Mountain, uh, Emerald Cup 
our distributor seeds here now is going to be representing a fish and all the cup i'll be doing some appearances there but due to regulation we weren't able to get all the right permits in time for the emerald cup this year so james is going to handle the launch for us we're also going to be doing an online uh pre-sale we've never done a launch online for the emerald cup it's always like people have always had to wait after the emerald cup for things to be available on seeds here now so what we're doing something different is since our market has magically grown global over the last two years we're going to offer you know special online pre-emerald cup release so people that are fans and have always supported us they could you know they have the opportunity to cop what's going to be at the emerald cup too everybody has the opportunity to cop it now yeah. But there's not going to be a lot. You know, we, 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 we did a 2,000 plant sift this year. We worked a lot of strains that we worked last year. Um, we ended up only keeping 80 plants out of the 2,000. And we only pollinated 13, 13 plants. Different, we used some different males on some different plants. But our production, like, that's what we made. And so five, five, to five of those 13 will probably make it. The fruit tartar turned out really good. The forbidden fruit in the pines. Uh, Cross Forbidden Fruit Magnum Opus, that turned out hella good. Uh, releasing that, we released six boxes of the F1 of Formula One. Um, and those auctioned for obscene amounts of money. We never thought they would auction for so much. I guess the fact that they had, there was only six boxes, we used some good shit on them too. Um, it, it went for a huge price, but we wanted people, we liked it so much. We was like, man, there just can't be six people with fucking boxes of Formula One. So we're going to release F2. And we were pretty happy with how the F2, um, how the F2 is turning out. And we're really excited with how the F1 turned out in general. So um, we have a, the Citron Flambe, which is the Sangria times Cherry Noir times Testarossa. Um, that's the one that we're really excited about. And um, we have a few that still waiting to be named. We just can't find the perfect name for them. But uh, we're we going to be releasing an OG cross this year. I did a collab with uh, the guy who brought me up to Mendo. His name is Mendocino Mike. And we bred his – he has this OG called – we call it the Green Bomb OG. His name is Mike Greenbaum. So we call it the Green Bomb OG. And what that is, it's an heirloom bubblegum crossed with uh, an SFV OG that he had from Seed that he's been making his himself for the last four years. And so he crossed that with the old school bubblegum, and he got this – bubblegum framed plant that turns purple but still somewhat smells like og it's weird it's like you get this fruity bubblegum but it's there's just as much og on the contrast in the bud it's fucking crazy and so we crossed that with our our versailles og which was like a really good solid og and um you know we're releasing that year and we're calling you know that that you know um that's gonna be we're releasing the miyazaki og and that's what we're calling that and um, yeah, that's from, you know, my old J Japan roots. Miyazaki was a director who created films such as Totoro. And we always called Mike Totoro cause he was like a mountain, he's like a, he's like a forest spirit. He's like, he's like this guy's, he's like a, you know, late fifties, huge white beard, tatted from head to toe, walks barefoot. He's a fucking mountain spirit. You know, this guy's a forest spirit, you know? So and he taught me a lot about, you know, paying respect to plants and, and appreciating nature the way that Miyazaki's films uh, did for me when I was growing up as a kid in Japan. So we chose to name that, that strain Miyazaki OG. And um, the next two, we just haven't named yet, but they're good. They're good. <laughs> like, 
like we, we we came across a flavor in um the backyard in bcn got some of these seeds uh leo got some of these seeds and it, it, its working title was rosso corsa and that was this offshoot from the the testarossa line we were working when we crossed it with the cherry noir and um rosso corsa is the name it, we weren't going to brand it this way because that's Ferrari has that name trademarked as the color of the paint on their cars. So it was just like, I just called it that just as remember that it was like, oh, that's obviously from my Testarossa cross. You know what I mean? Because the, the number, the color red on the Testarossas was called Rosa Corsa. But we're, 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 we're going through this thing where we're trying to find a good identity for it because it doesn't smell like anything we've ever worked before. It's got a completely, it literally smells like, um, like if you were trick-or-treating and you had a roll of Smarties in your pocket get crushed up, and then somehow someone spilled gasoline. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's insane, like crazy. We've never been able, we never thought we'd be able to get terps like this to express. So we wanted something that we could call it that would give it its justice, and two, we wouldn't get a cease and desist from Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds exciting. You know, cause, yeah, because Testarossa is like you know Italian for redhead. And so, like, a lot of the, the stems and the leaves in the Testarossa would, would get this red hue. And that's why, you know, we called it the Testarossa. And the Rosso Corsa was even more fucking red. It was just this brilliant, vibrant red that would transition to a lavender and then, like, a royal purple. And then, but the nose was just pure candy shop. Pure candy shop. So wow. Maybe we'll call it candy shop. <laughs> <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds really exciting. I got a question, though, for you, and you've got to be honest here. When you do the online launch, do you expect the site to crash? Fuck. <laughs> I w- that would be cool. <laughs> I mean, the, the coolest thing that happened to Seeds here now is we crashed their servers one time um, where the orders came in so fast they actually oversold and because the computers couldn't keep up with them with the, with the frequency of orders going out. So that was like... You know, we never expect these kind of things to happen. It's just we're really grateful and, and we're humbled, you know, because we really approach this like as music. You know, we could, you know, if we're in if we're in the, 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 the garden, you know, our, our version of a studio, there's a really good chance what we what we make won't connect. So it's like if it connects on the front end and people like the cross and they like the way it sounds and then it really expresses itself to exceed their expectations, then that's what we'll know you know, our job is done. So it's like, it's really hard for us to get excited over sales because the sales the, is the first part of that, that, that relationship with, with the grower, you know, who's, who's the cornerstone of your fucking brand. And it, you have to get his validation. It's not a good day. It's not a good day when you sell the seeds. It's a scary day when you sell the seeds because you better fucking hope those seeds come out good for that grower. So when, when you get the feedback months later, that's when you know you could, you could rest easy. Because your testing could be on point. And your friend's gardens that you're testing other strains too because we tested our other strains in Mendo this year. And they did, they did good as usual because Mendo's where we're from. We know it's going to test good. But is it going to hold up in other people's grows? It's going to express yourselves to you according to your expectations and their expectations in their environment. So that's, that's the key. So I try not to get too excited about it. You know, I think if you get excited about selling seeds, you're in it for the wrong purpose. And that, you know... Um, you know, if you're getting excited too early and and then, you know, uh, you just can't forecast the fucking future. You know what I mean? If we could all forecast the future, we wouldn't be in the weed game. We'd be running hedge funds. So, and yeah. that's just a fact. 
all the testing in the world could be good, but if it doesn't prove itself on the market, you're fucked. <laughs> so bringing us to kind of the tail end of things, a really interesting question I pose to a lot of people. It doesn't seem to be a very clear answer. What's your recommendations for the small-scale farmers, both indoor and out, who are kind of continually dealing with this conundrum of ever-decreasing prices and ever-increasing supply? That's a really difficult problem, isn't it? You know, I think the regulations are changing almost daily. Right when people adapt to a certain set of circumstances, the circumstances change yet again. I'm a long-term thinker. I know it's really painful for a lot of people that, that, that are, are in the rec industry. It's not as profitable as it used to be. you got to pay every fucking tax under the moon. Um, you, know, uh, you know, things are getting spread out. Regulation makes it so you you know definitely like like I said before you we're not making as much money so I'm a, speaking in the sense of long speaking in light of you know of, of a long term scale if 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 they could just hold on hold on for another two to four years man keep grinding as hard as you fucking can for two to four years because Canada's already made cannabis international and the amount of fucking money that government cannabis is going to dramatically improve Canada's GDP huge and america's not going to sit back and watch this happen for too much longer a lot of people a lot of people agree with the sentiment in washington and um i still talk to a lot of my old colleagues back in washington that are still doing it i'm like hey what's hot right now what's where do you think politics are going you know um and then i'll kind of get a feel for things i think that whether you want to fucking acknowledge it or not cannabis is international right now so people these small farmers have to embrace the future and, and just hold the fuck on because once this goes international these small farms are autumn are, are overnight going to be big or are, are, are going to be the next big napa wineries all their products going to fucking sell out over and over and over and over smart ones are going to fuck a scale immediately and then they're going to they're going to you know california right now california weed is all over the fucking planet if you go on instagram you go on different feeds in the UK. You go on different feeds in Spain. Just the fact of the matter is there's, there's, there's California-branded weed everywhere, and it's going for a premium. And that's, you know, so a lot of people have to understand, when we were, when we were breeding, we like to read what the black market's doing and see what trends in the black market are doing. That's the mo- one of the most demanding markets as far as taste and flavor when you're just dealing with people that, that buy things at the highest ticket possible. And so it's like what the black market's doing, you know, worldwide – you know, you're seeing a, a lot of, you know, somehow a lot of these packs from Cali are, 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 are going worldwide, but they're going for huge premiums. And that should be indicated to everybody that when this fucking switch flips, guys, when this switch flips, everyone's going to have it made that, that, that sacrificed everything, that put their fucking dick on the line, you know, put, put everything on the line, their families, their well-being, to, to just keep doing this dream of cannabis we got to stop looking at just the Cali thing, even though it's the Cali thing for right now, because it's not always going to be like that. The world's global and the market dynamics are going to change big time. But one thing we know that's not going to change is that consistently the best quality is going to continue to come out of California, hands down. It's just our culture, what we're known for. That's it, right? Yep. So I'm telling you, you're at the top. It's hard right now. It's hard to look at it. Just hold on, guys. I believe in everybody, man. It's like our shit was so fire. For years, it was going back east for a, for a long time. You know what I mean? 
and and who else knows where it was going? But when once we know right now, if you if you just surf on Instagram a little hard, you see Cali weed in different places in Europe. It happens. They have a whole import category at clubs in Amsterdam. Import weed. Get fuck out of here. Really? I was like, come on, guys. That's the highest price point. So it's like people need to start ex- accepting that our fate as California, for the large part, if you're raw at your fucking game, man, it's gonna be like wine. Or your shit's going to go for extremely high premiums, one, because of your location, and two, because you got roots in the game, and you're able to back that up with your quality. So it's like, if, if you got a farm and you're holding on right now, just keep fucking holding on, guys, because, you know, you're going to do way better. You know, you guys are going to be the magic makers that connect with everybody. Breeders can only connect with so many people, but growers connect with everybody. Those are the true artists. So... What do you think is the best way to deal with the dichotomy of, you know, needing to use Instagram or social media in general as a breeder to promote your brand, but also, you know, trying to it's stay necessary. off it? It's fucking necessary. I think if anybody doesn't think it's necessary, you're crazy. Your, your shit better be so fucking fire. Other people just naturally post pictures of it. You know what I mean? I think the, 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 uh, the world's changed. How we interface with people has changed. Before it was on threads and it was on forums, it was on IC Mag, it was on the hustle. But now Instagram has changed the game. We're so more connected than we've ever been. People are able to show their grow methods. You know, we've seen a huge exponential increase in raw growers. You know, motherfuckers are put people. A lot of people, a lot of hobbyist growers, people just starting out, people just in Instagram are growing some good shit because they're watching all these pros on Instagram. Sharing their knowledge, man. Sharing, sharing the tech, and so like you know, quality, you know, quality's you know continuing to go up, and that's because of the phenomenon of Instagram, and more people globally have been able to discover aficionado through IG than we ever have been, you know, being in magazines, you know, being in, you know, being a skunk, you know, and being in high times, you know. I mean, being in high times is big for us, but consistently, when you have a platform that reaches everybody in the world and everyone network you know overlaps to these over worldwide networks it creates a reach that we never been able to see before so it's like i think everyone's still adjusting to this new culture of ig it's absolutely necessary and if it's fucked up when people get their accounts deleted because their livelihoods their followings are dependent on 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 their ig and unfortunately a lot of people's success is measured upon their followers because people think there's a corollary between your followers and your consistency as being someone who's a supplier of quality so but perception's reality and this is how people communicate so we can't ignore reality we got to be real yeah totally. right now it's on instagram it goes down the dm <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, so just on to the final little last few questions. These are the more short response ones, generally speaking. First one, it's a bit of a lesser ass one, but I have a feeling you have a good answer. What's your favorite Tom Hill strain besides Deep Chunk? It was Deep Chunk. I know, but that's why I said besides. It was Deep that. Chunk because I heard stories about him um, on Spyrock having the balls to select through 3,000 plants. Like, nobody was doing that when Tom Hill was doing that. Fucking nobody. And so the fact that he was able to get the old blue Hindu and the old red Hindu, um, and, and they're, they're, people in town, Laytonville, can actually trace back who the fuck brought the Hindu back to Laytonville. And, you know, it's, it's not my business to, to make, you know, who these people are public knowledge. Um, but definitely, you know, Jackson knows these people. You mean Gene knows these people for 100%. Um, and you know, these are the people that originally brought Hindu Kush back to Spyrock in the seventies. 
And so, like, when Tom Hill was working it in the, what, the 90s, early 2000s, nobody was doing that. Nobody was putting their balls in the line selected like that. So it was just the whole mystique of him having him, – him being so devoted to his craft, he's willing to blow it up that much. Not to sell the flower, but to select a fucking seed. Oh, he was crazy back in the day to not use that shit and to sell all that flour. Like, he was selecting for, like, the best possible shit. Like, that's passion. And so it's like for that one, like he went through that sacrifice to make Deep Chunk, bro. That's my that's my backup. Why Deep Chunk's my favorite of his. It was the folklore behind that too that really attracted me. Yeah, no, it's a good story and is a fan favorite. So next one, what strain do you wish you had back? Oh fuck. Um. Which one did I fucking get rid of? Which one have I lost? I lost my original G13 cross. That got lost. That got lost in a raid. It was at a buddy's place. Uh, it was a G13 cross Panama. Um, it wasn't anything that was super special. It was something that was special to me in the terms that it, one, it harvested late as fuck. You know, harvested like tw- second week in November, but it didn't get any mold. And it had the craziest high, the crazy, craziest high. Um, but the one... I really regret losing is uh, the the really the, the the bulk of my white cashmere seeds. I think that was one of the strains that I really could have opened up a lot more. I really could have explored that one a lot more. And um, you know, there's a few others that I've let kind of go out of the window that I'm like, fuck, I shouldn't have sold all those. You know, because it was to me, I, I did, I want if I want it, to me, it was a, it was a personal thing that if if I really felt my work was good enough, I'd, I'd let it all go. You know, I'd save like a little bit, but I wanted to see really where I stood. You know, would it come back to me? Would people keep working it? And if people didn't work it, then obviously it wasn't, it didn't meet my expectations for, for what could be a classic, you know, because people weren't inclined to keep working it. And so it was things like that where I released really small numbers of it, people didn't work it because I felt like I could have done better at the breeding. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. So what is the most memorable or the best strain you've ever smoked? <sighs> Big Sir Holy Wheat. Um, 2012, we were at the Cannabis Cup in, in Richmond. I was with Frenchie. It was the first cup I met Bam uh, when Bam was still working with Coastal Seeds. And I met Mike from Coastal Seeds. And I had always read about the big Sir Holyweed. And I was like dying to try it. I was, I'm a sativa guy. And I was dabbing all day. It was like when dabs and shatter came out. You know, it was 2012, you know, Cannabis Cup. And we were, da- we were, we were getting fucked up, man. We were dabbing like crazy. I didn't think I'd get any higher. Mike pulls out this joint. I meet Mike from Coastal Seeds through our friend Johnny Q. And who Johnny Q runs Stanky Dank. He's also an Emerald Cup winner from 2011, 2010. And, um, and fucking, he, we light this Big Sir Holyweed and it cuts clear through all the dabs. Like, it was almost like the C5 Haze. Like, the, the closest thing to C5 Haze for me, as far as like intensity of cerebral high, was, was Mike's Big Sir Holyweed. That shit was fucking crazy. It was like, it cut through all those dabs. We were smoking OG. You know, Bamf was big at the time. We were smoking a lot of his fucking lemon OG hash, which was really strong. You know, I had a kick. Man, but that fucking big story, that was probably easily 
the most me- that uh, and and this too this too when i won the cup in 2012 um derek emerald gave me some flowers of his in the pines and derek emerald had won five emerald cups previous you know to me winning and to me i think he's probably one of the absolute but he's in my opinion, the absolute best grower to ever compete in the Emerald Cup circuit is Derek Emerald. And when I smoked his flowers, I think, I think you know, on point with how blown away I was with, with Mike's flowers, that was really memorable as far as like, holy fuck, that's Big Sir Holyweed. It's exceeded all expectations. That's incredible. But um, Derek Emerald's flowers in the, in the pines he gave me that year was the absolute best flower I've ever fucking smoked. You could taste, taste the fucking love that he put into it, you know? And then I think also the first time I met, I met Mean Gene. Is the first time I met Mean Gene was at the Peg House in Leggett. And um, I meet him online. He's telling me he has some crazy shit. And he says, hey, come out to this reggae show. I'm going to be uh, performing. I'm like, fuck you, you do reggae? That's, that's cool. That's hella cool. So I'm like out there. I haven't met him yet. I'm waiting to meet Jackson at the Peg House. And we, we, we see our, our homie, he's like this, you know, old, this OG guy, everybody from the neighborhood knows. And I, I say, you know, hey, what's up, man? Here's my weed. Check out my weed. You know, and I show him this weed of this bud of uh, something we selected from the canatonic that we called La Dolce Vita. It was like this 27% THC uh, canatonic. It was fucking crazy. And um, then, then I smell what, what, what homie's smoking on, what Rick was smoking on, and and, and it was like the craziest fucking flavor I've ever smelled. And I'm like, what the fuck are you smoking? He goes, uh, cherry, cherry, cherry crossed lime, cherry pie crossed lime. And I'm like, who grew that? He was like, my boy. He wouldn't tell me who grew it, you know? He was like, my boy. And then, you know, I remember uh, Jackson, you know, Gene goes on stage, he does his thing, kills it. You know, he's a really good performer, if you haven't heard his music. Um, but he gets off stage, and I'm like, bro, you got to fucking try this weed bro <laughs> he was like and then rick's like oh that's my boy he's the one who made it and i was like you know it was like bro you, you know if you would have entered that this year you would have you would have fucking beat me like hardcore like it would have been landslide he was like nah he was really humble about it I'm like no nah, your fucking shit would have won bro if you entered this and he ended up fucking getting a breeder's cup with cherry lime like a few years later you know what i mean and it was like, that was like, so those three experiences, Derek Emerald, Mike from Coastal, and then the first time I met Mean Gene in 2012 um, at the Peg House. That was like the most memorable pot experiences I had. Oh, and then one more. I have to share one more. One more because it's good. Um, the first day I get to Mendo, I'm at Mountain Mike's house. And um, we had, we're fresh from San Diego. We had just closed the club down. Uh, the sheriffs had shut the club down. And, uh, but Mike had some weed that was hanging in the house for like literally six fucking months. Like the whole time he was like, you know, it was Mike when I was running the club in, in San Diego with Mike, he was back and forth, you know, going from Mendo to San Diego all the time. And so like when we finally had the club shut down, we were there, he had this weed that was hanging there for six months and it was original Urkel. And it was the first time I had the realest Urkel. And that was, that was probably some of the highest probably the hot some of the happiest high t- weed i've ever smoked in my life was was that original urkel that mike 
had just sitting there after months and months and months and months. I never tasted a flavor like that, you know. His house was like in the trees, and so it was in this place in the stairs where his house was wood, and there was like the perfect, it was always cool and cold, and there was always the right temperature, so it just cured perfectly after this last six months. But, you know, that was like, it was my first time in Mendo, and my first time smoking Mendo weed was like, you know, that, that Urkel. So I guess... You know, those four experiences were like definitive to me, which which changed how I looked at weed and how I approached that weed. Every single one of those experiences pushed me to want to get to that level. I was like, wow, that level exists. What do I have to do to just get on that level? What what kind of concentration do I need to have? What discipline do I need to have to express myself in the way these guys are expressing themselves? You know, it came like that for me. Yeah, what an awesome little backstory. So on to our third last question. The polar opposite of the best one, what's the worst weed strand? Berry White. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking hate Berry White. I mean, it's a great plant to grow, but it's got it's just frosty, it's got no kick. The hash sucks. Nobody wants to smoke it. I mean that was definitely one strain that I wasn't really a fan of. Like um I'm a big fan of weed. You know, so it's like there's one strain I hate growing. I hate growing Bubba, but I love smoking that one. But there's one thing I just hate smoking is fucking, you know, some people say Blue Dream, Trainwreck. I like smoking all that shit. You know what I mean? But it's for some reason, yeah. I do not. Very white. Yeah. I'll always have a little soft spot for Blue Dream, I reckon. On to the next question. <laughs> so, Desert Island, top three weeds, all you can smoke for the rest of your life. What are you going to do? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Damn, he got me on that one. Oh, okay. Okay, I got you. I got you. Original. It's really hard to find the original Sour D. Everybody says they have it, but it's not the real Sour D. Even when I was moving packs, one out of 20 pounds was the real Sour D. Any hustler agree with that. <laughs> like, yeah, motherfucker's right. He's probably being nice, too. Um, but if, you could, if I could find the, you know, the original... Just like that fucking crazy sour from back in the day that would just stink up your whole car. I'd bring that with me. I'd definitely bring Chem Dog. Yeah, Chem Dog, Sour, and C5 Haze. Nice little array. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> okay, and so, lucky last question. If you could go back in time to anywhere, any place, to get some land race seeds, presumably, where would you go? Oh man. I don't know, like Marco Polo times in like Southeast Asia. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, before like Western expansion, you know, because with trade, you also saw the trade of certain cultivars of plants that were being domesticated by people throughout, you know, uh, you know, Europe and, and Asia. Um, so, you know, I always heard these stories about, you know, my, my favorite weed just generally since I was in Thailand as a young kid has always been the Thai and the Burmese weed. And I always wondered what weed was like from those villages because they, they purposely cultivated those flowers in certain parts of those areas just for their flower, just for smoking it. You know, whereas other places in the region, in, in the world, like, you know, like India and, and, and Pakistan and, and Afghanistan, there's, there's hash cultures and other places that were cultivating hemp were cultivating it for fiber. But, you know, uh, Southeast Asia was one of those rare places where people, you know, and some parts of Africa, too. I won't forget about that. But, um, you know, fuck, Thailand, Burma, 
1800s before Western, real, real Western industrial, you know, technocratic expansion happened where people, where their, where their ancient way of life was, um, wasn't allowed anymore, you know? So I wanted to, you might, my, my, you know, if I had it, if I got to get a time machine, it would be like, what was, what, what, if they were one of the only cultures on the fucking planet, you know, breeding weed and selecting it for the taste and the high of the flower, man, what the fuck were they smoking on before, you know, Western, for Western idea, you know, ideals says that this isn't good for you and we have to outlaw that. Or even before when, you know, you know, different cha- dramatic changes happen in certain countries where that culture is lost because the village is obliterated due to war. You know, that's also a factor too. So, um, yeah, I've got the, I've got a thing for those hazes from Southeast Asia. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Alrighty, so I think that might bring us to just about the end of it. Did you have any comments or shout-outs you wanted to make? Man, uh, dude, big shout-out to Professor Q, you know, Quentin, man. Uh, big shout-out to, to my sister, uh, Cherry Blossom Bell, who's Frenchie's apprentice. Big out shout-out to Frenchie. And uh, big shout-out to my brother, who is, you know, the guy that is responsible for for – for fighting to get me in the industry when I got out, I got out of the army on, on those drug charges and, and he was able to find me a job with, with Mike. He's, he hooked me up with Mike who brought me up to Mendo. And so I owe my brother that, you know? So, and now he's in Mendo running a big ass farm. <laughs> so I'm happy for him, but big shout out, man. I wouldn't be here without you. I love you. And, um, you know, big shout out to big shout out to me and Gene. You know, he played a big part in, in helping, you know, everything where it's at right now and um, how I approach work and learning from the mistakes and shit like that, you know, and, uh, you know, yeah, big shout out to, big shout out to me, Gene, man. Yeah, Frenchie, of course, Frenchie. It's my, it's my, it's my family. Frenchie and, and Kim. I love you guys. <laughs> oh, and, and James. Dude, so James from Seeds here now. That fucking guy, big shout out, not just because he's my, my, my seed distro, but he's been a good friend to me, and there was a time um, that that same year that, you know, the year after Mandelbrot passed away when things got really rough for aficionado, you know, James had a big part in, in saving us. And so we could continue doing what we do. So, like, big shout-out to James. You know, he really takes care of his people. You know, if, you, if you're hating on him, it's none of my fucking business. He's always been good to us and make sure that, you know, aficionado could, can continue to, like, feed our family, you know what I mean? So, like, big shout-out to James. Yeah, 100%. I can be yeah. He's always looked after us here as well. 100%. Alrighty, so I think that yeah, probably... Thanks pre- for the opportunity, bro. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, no worries, dude. Thanks so much for coming on the show and for dropping all the knowledge bombs. Oh, yeah, it's just... Some, yeah, I'm happy to share, bro. Thanks for the platform. And, you know, it's really cool to be able to, you know, talk to people like you. And, man, you're really good, dude. Like, the questions were like, wow, it's a good one. <laughs> So there you have it, Famalam. A big thank you again to Leo for taking the time to join us today. And a big thank you to you guys for hanging around for the whole show, keeping me company. As always, huge shout out to our three sponsors, Seeds Here Now, 420 Australia and Organic Gardening Solutions. These are my favorite three. Go check them out, guys. You won't be disappointed. Likewise, huge shout out to the Patreon gang. As I say every week, lifeblood of the show, blessed with that extra content. If you too want to check it out, go see for yourself. Otherwise, I'll see you next time, guys. See you.